You're listening to Astroscope, astrology podcast by Mark Lerner and Great Bear Enterprises. This podcast is sponsored by Buzzword Consulting and Forfame.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our 69th podcast. It is Sunday, December 20th, 2020. And after offering the astrology of the 2020 U.S. elections and the next presidential inauguration, part six, we now present the soul awakening astrology of 2020 morphing into 2021. This new podcast, a.k.a. part seven of the U.S. election and inauguration series and our recent podcasts include the horoscope of the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere tomorrow on December 21, 2020, and the Jupiter-Saturn union in Aquarius on the same day. Also, the chart for Joe Biden being declared president-elect on Saturday, November 7, the horoscope for the evening of the U.S. election on November 3rd, the next presidential inauguration horoscope for January 20th, 2021, charts for Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Mike Pence, Kamala Harris, several horoscopes of previous presidential inaugurations, plus the total solar eclipse on December 14, 2020, and key charts of upcoming major planetary alignments happening in the next two years. Overall, this is the 69th podcast offered to the public since May of 2019. So having said all that, I want to share some upfront information. There is a real game plan here. Uh, and I'm hoping to do this all in a little bit less time than the last uh, podcast, which was over about three and a half hours. It wasn't actually the longest one I've ever done, but that was to catch up because I hadn't done a podcast in a month. And I explained why, um, mostly because every single day um, from November onward until I did the last one, Podcast 68, only a few days ago, there was just so much news going on about the election, all these different lawsuits and um, information going back and forth, Supreme Court, the uh, the attempt by the president of the United States and different members of his team to overturn the election. And of course, that's still happening if you watch the news. I know a lot of you um, are getting sick and tired of watching news. And over the last year and over many years, people are often thinking, uh, well, the press is lying to us or our government is lying to us or we don't know the truth um, based on what's been happening in all of our lives for decades um, due to a lot of concealment by not just our government, but many governments around the planet. So it's, it's, it's not surprising that many people are skeptical, whether it's about the, the, um, the different vaccines coming out now or what the government is, is attempting to tell us. But up front here, before we go on, um, I want to just mention, as I've done before, um, on our website, which is www.greatbearenterprises, with an S at the end, .com, there are many complimentary sections. We've got global hotspot about new moons, full moons, and eclipses. In fact, we'll get into that. I just added one about the winter solstice, which is the start of the winter season in the Northern Hemisphere. We'll get to that shortly because of the Jupiter-Saturn union, the first one um, in 20 plus years. The last one happened in late May of 2000. And now, uh, of course, we all are aware, even if you're not into astrology, that the two largest planets in our solar system are merging. 
and that's happening tomorrow, uh, today being December 20th, during the winter solstice or the beginning of the winter season, Northern Hemisphere. So I put that chart out before, and I'm going to put that out again with this particular podcast. So on our website, Global Hotspots is a great place to go to learn a lot of astrology about new moons, full moons, eclipses, and many other things. That's complimentary. We've got our Earth Aquarius News section. Our old website used to be called Earth Aquarius News. And then a couple of years ago, we morphed all of that into Great Bear Enterprises. At the end of this particular podcast, I will actually share a story about how the Great Bear began coming out of Findhorn when I was there in the late 1970s. So we'll eventually get to that. And that's from the same Welcome to Planet Earth magazine, Pioneering Astrology, that it was fortunate enough to publish uh, for 20 years between 1981 and 2000. And so last time I read an article that I wrote back 25 years ago about Jupiter's exact 83-year cycle. So uh, if you haven't listened to Podcast 68 and several of the previous ones, you're going to want to uh, tune into that. There's many hours uh, on this whole series about the U.S. elections of November 3rd and the next presidential inauguration on January 20th, 2021. Of course, in that uh, complimentary area uh, on our website, which is the Mark Lerner Astrology Radio Astroscope section, you can go all the way back to May of 2019 when I started all this with 17 podcasts having to do with the United States birth chart progressed through what we call secondary progressions because the Sun and Pallas Athena one of the main four asteroids discovered back in 1802, those two celestial bodies came together for our chart for the Declaration of Independence, and they came together right as the whole timing of the Mueller report came out. So 17 podcasts back in May of 2019 and June, July, and so on, um, before uh, the, the country went through the whole uh, situation of impeachment, uh, the impeachment of Donald Trump. Of course, he he was not um, eliminated by the Senate. Uh, same thing happened with uh, Bill Clinton back um, after the Monica Lewinsky situation it had developed in 1997, 1998, 1999, when those revelations came out. And Bill Clinton was became the second president impeached. The first one was Andrew Johnson. And again, he wasn't, um, it's the Senate that has to decide in a trial whether or not an impeached president, because the impeachment happens in the House, would be removed from office. And I think it was just one single senator um, changing a vote. Um, otherwise, Andrew Johnson would have actually been turned out of office. Uh, Bill Clinton was impeached, just like Donald Trump. But neither Bill Clinton or, or Donald Trump, um, it was never going to be that they would be removed from office. It's just the stain of having an impeachment on one's record. So... At any rate, the, the initial podcasts last year were focused a lot on the Mueller report, but there's so many other themes and charts and all kinds of things if you go back, and it's all complimentary. So it's dozens of hours that are all complimentary. And on the website, we have a folder. So when you go there, and you, again, the podcast can be listened to on Apple and Spotify and different places, but you really need to come to our website at greatbearenterprises.com because there's a folder and they have charts for each podcast, charts and images and different kind of things that are very significant. And you'll miss out if you don't take a look at those. So uh, again, we also have astro-business-keys, complimentary. 
You want to learn the themes and archetypes of the sun, the moon, the eight planets from Mercury to Pluto, the four main asteroids, Ceres, Pallas, Athena, Juno, and Vesta, as well as Chiron, then you get these themes. And it's not just on business. You can learn a whole lot there. So this is just all complimentary. In the Earth Aquarius News section, I had my daughter Katya, who's the person who's designed our website over the last couple of years, done a fabulous job. Uh, and she's constantly doing a great job. And I had her make sure that there is the nuclear axis story, or at least one of them, um, and that's available. It's a, it's a very um, in-depth article that will explain to you about one of the main research projects I did. Actually, it is the main research. It goes all the way back to 1982. And then it kept repeating in Welcome to Planet Earth. So eight, 1982 is 38 years ago. And it was an unusual discovery that I made. It is a discovery um, about how astrology and certain areas of the zodiac connect up to nuclear energy and atomic energy. You can read the essence of that in Earth Aquarius News, and you'll see if you go in there on the website, right at the top, you'll see a, a special article. You can download it, you can read it, you can see the different images and learn more about why that's so uh, significant. And of course, as I shared before, the other big area that I focus on, and not just on John F. Kennedy and his assassination, but his whole life, the meaning he had for our country, how um, it's, a, it's an article that was at the cover, a beautiful cover that we did uh, and story, uh, The Wound That Never never Heals. And this has to do with Chiron being stationary. I've done so much work on Chiron. Again, so many astrologers have since its discovery in 1977. It's often called the wounded healer. It's amazing mythology of Chiron, uh, half human, half horse, as a shaman, a mentor connected to rainbow bridges and deja vu and psychic sensitivity and healing on so many different levels, holistic healing in particular, uh, just dozens of different themes. Again, we have Chiron listed in the Astro Business Keys, and Chiron is a big, big important factor when President Kennedy died in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. Why? It was exactly stationary on that day. It wasn't moving. And what and I did so much other research and have done research on Chiron over the years. We just had a Chiron station, um, which just occurred a couple of days ago, which was the day after the total solar eclipse. We'll get back to that, December 14th, just a week ago. Total solar eclipse in Sagittarius. It actually occurred um, in terms of the path of totality down in the South Pacific. It went through um, Chile and Argentina, but it affects everyone on on our planet, particularly Donald Trump, because it's exactly opposite the total lunar eclipse when he was born on June 14, 1946. And I've shared so much about his nature and the problems, the, the, the bestseller called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president. They, there are many more stories that have come out. Uh, Bandy Lee, who's a doctor, uh, is the editor of that amazing book. I do own it. I have not actually gone through the whole thing. I got it because I wanted to be able to eventually go through, assuming at some point he would no longer be president and things would hopefully in our country get back to some sense of what I call normous, nor normalcy. I guess the term now uh, when Dr. Fauci keeps talking about is normality. That sounds like a weird word having been a writer since uh, I was 18 years old, uh, back in 1968. Um, I think that word uh, should be normalcy, but 
perhaps I'm wrong about that. Maybe it was at one point and they've changed it to normality, but that just doesn't sound right. At any rate, I've always been feeling that at some point, the presidency, the office of the presidency, which has not been a happy place, let's just put it this way, over the last four years, in my personal opinion, I've shared so much about that in the podcast. Maybe other people have a different view about that, but I really think uh, not only is there the dangerous case of Donald Trump in terms of what the psychiatrists and the mental health experts have shared, and again, it doesn't get much press for the reason I shared, I think it was last time and other times, about what's called the Goldwater Rule, because of Barry Goldwater running for president uh, against Lyndon Johnson in 1964. And, and while Barry Goldwater was a very esteemed conservative senator from Arizona, he didn't exactly have the highest scientific understanding of nuclear weapons, let's put it that way, to be kind. And therefore, he, he shared a lot of dangerous talk about nuking different places around the world. And as we learn from actually the great astrology hater, uh, Carl Sagan, who wrote one of the most fantastic stories that was in Parade Magazine, I think it was 1983, but I remember reading it, um, about what would happen if that people were never talking about, about nuclear weapons. We were talking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the megatons increasing and how a nuclear war has almost happened between America and Russia during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62. I've shared more about that. And that's actually going to be pretty critical. In It's always critical now because of all the weapons that are in the world uh, of the nuclear powers, and there are many nuclear powers. We're going to get into this. Eventually, I'm going to read um, my nuclear access articles. Um, there are many of them in a series, uh, perhaps sometime in 2021, because I've never actually done that, and it's important. But we have a lot of dangers regarding um, nuclear energy, and it's not just because of radiation, but Carl Sagan wrote about, it was actually called the nuclear winter, and it was about what would happen in the atmosphere if there were, aside from the, the extraordinary damage to the earth and killing people and radioactivity, nobody had contemplated what would happen with dust and clouds and, and covering the earth with all kinds of um, heavy cloud cover, which would block out the sun and so on. So he, Carl Sagan spent pretty much most of his lifetime uh, considering that astrology had no merits. It, it reminds me of the, um, which is part of the astrology history between Sir Isaac Newton, the debate between Sir Isaac Newton and Edmund Haley. And Edmund Haley is famous for having discovered the comet with his name, which is a periodic comet. And he, Edmund Haley, as a great astronomer, um, with having that, he did many other things, but he, he realized that this particular comet comes back every 76 years. And I think I shared before, Mark Twain came in on Halley's Comet when he was born in 1835 and said, I'm going to go out with it. And when Halley's Comet came back in 1911, he died. So that was an extraordinary kind of thing. And of course, Mark Twain was not into astrology, but one, was one of the great novelists, certainly of uh, the the 19th century into the first part of the 20th century and his incredible humor. And yet at the same time, he becomes famous for saying something like that. I mean, I shouldn't say he became famous, but added to his fame by predicting that he would die when Halley's Comet came back. So perhaps if somebody is born during a year when Halley's Comet arrives, then when Halley, Halley's Comet comes back, if they can live 76 years, that might be a time when they leave the scene on Earth. At uh, any rate, the argument between Sir uh, 
Edmund Haley and Sir Isaac Newton was that uh, Isaac Newton was a studier of astrology. And so there's a famous quotation where they're having an argument and debate and Edmund Haley is saying things like, oh, you believe in that ridiculous astrology as a pseudoscience. And Sir Isaac Newton says as a retort, sir, I have studied the subject and you have not. So it's a very famous quotation uh, for for astrologers to be able to go back to the person who was considered before Einstein, one of the greatest, if not the previous greatest scientist, um, at least in the few hundred years before Einstein. So Sir Isaac Newton studied astrology, Galileo studied astrology, Copernicus studied astrology. We have so many different people who were physicists and astrophysicists and astronomers, and by the way, they were astrologers, but Sir Edmund Haley was not one of those. At any rate, um, so I just wanted you to know more about the upfront area before we go through this whole list of things. In addition, of course, uh, my daughter was able to create, um, put the cosmic calendar, which I started, it was always the centerpiece of Welcome to Planet Earth, our magazine that went around the world. It was it started as a new, newsletter, then it became a newspaper. Then 1987, out here on the West Coast in Eugene, in Oregon, it became a magazine and flourished to 2000 into the beginning of 2001 and then we ended it but then i continued a lot of that work including the cosmic calendar which had been this at the center of of the magazine and all, all these great astrologers particularly people focusing on what we call mundane and earth astrology about new moons eclipses famous individuals in the world uh major planetary alignments and so on so the cosmic calendar then i continue with that online and we're now in the 39th year and we've now developed as an as an app so it's called astrology cosmic calendar three words and calendar begins with a k and it's available for ios and android and it's free if you want to just have one day at a time doesn't cost you anything for a very low price you can get it uh, for a year for six months uh, for a month and it allows you to go ahead in time not just for the next day, but the next week, the next two weeks. We often have it three to four weeks into the future. Right now, it's going almost four weeks into the future uh, to, the, to just past the middle of January. And here it is, December 20th. And the Cosmic Calendar, if you are a subscriber, goes almost um, tw about 28 days into the future. So we always try and keep it for sure two weeks into the future. And that way you can make plans and appointments using the cosmic calendar. As I say many times, each one of us is a walking cosmic calendar because each one of our birth charts, month, day, and year, the exact time, particular place, longitude and latitude, that was the cosmic calendar at that moment in that place, frozen in time. So as you develop in your life, you have, of course, your natal chart. We've got your transits wherever the planets, sun, moon, planets, asteroids, Chiron, the nodes of the moon, wherever they're moving in the sky, those are your transits. So that's unfolding in your life and affecting you. And then there are progressions, different systems. I've mentioned a lot what's called secondary progressions, the main progress system, which is each day after your birth, back in the year you were born is equal to a year of life. And astrologers have been working with that system to see the deeper psychological emotional and spiritual factors as i've shared before we have all these astrology reports they're computerized but they're incredible and they can help you enormously there in our astrology shop on great pair enterprises and whether it's timeline or skylog or just for women uh, heaven knows what four asteroids and chiron 
the sky within we have the special right now three for three and one which is a bargain and this has to do with the sky within report about your natal chart and what's called the skylog report on your transits and progressions for the whole year ahead and then also a numerology report uh what's called the advanced personal numerology report and those that three for one which normally is somewhere about 135 dollars is on a special because we're moving into 2021 so it would give you uh, and these, the two reports, the Sky Within and Skylog, are designed by Stephen Forrest. He's a great astrologer. He used to write for Welcome to Planet Earth a long time ago in the 1980s, which was at around the time he was he and his wife were starting an incredible business, and they've written many books and so on. So those reports, which are in plain English, the Sky Within and uh, Skylog, are part of this special. Now again, I'm doing this little these different promotions you can see it on the website these different sales 40 percent off other things they change from time to time but I, I suggest getting into these because some of these are all complimentary on the website global hotspot earth aquarius news with all actually dozens of our previous specials and main stories not just the nuclear axis or the wound that never heals about jfk in the earth aquarius news section but you'll see there's like 20 30 other articles in there that are fantastic stories all complimentary as well as Global Hotspot, which has world maps and um, charts for new moons, full moons, uh, for instance, the winter solstice, calculated for Washington, D.C., for our country, but any capital of the world or any locality, one can do a new moon chart, a full moon chart, or a solstice, or an equinox chart, or an eclipse chart. So I think I've given you most of these. Oh, oh yeah, of course, there's the classes, um, 36 one-hour lessons on astrology, the School of Planetary Studies. We've got an enormous special on that. So many people, unfortunately, with the coronavirus and the pandemic, uh, again, there are 13 podcasts I did on that, including charts for China and the World Health Organization and the CDC and so many key figures involved with um, what we've all been dealing with in 2020, this horrendous year, which is continuing because, again, now we've got flu season on top of that. The latest reports just in the last 48 hours or 72 hours from England that there's a new strain that um, Boris Johnson announced he had wanted to open up Christmas a little bit for people in the United Kingdom. And then suddenly he changed his mind uh, because the doctors and the scientists said, hey, there's a new strain. Now, it's not necessarily, quote unquote, from what we're hearing more lethal, but it's more transmissible. And so look what we're seeing in the United States with these cases skyrocketing as people have had these holidays and so many people are still think it's a hoax. They're not wearing their masks. They think they can get through it. They're not listening to the news. They're not listening to the doctors. And even, even if you are wearing a mask, and this is something that I do if I'm going out, I don't go out a whole lot these days, just like most people or a lot of people, if you're not on the front lines and delivering packages or in, in hospitals or clinics to uh, being at stores, if somehow you're more isolated and doing work from home or doing things more virtually, then you're not getting out as much. But no matter what, wearing a mask, I mean, this is like absolutely necessary and not just six feet apart, but is social distancing or we might call physical distancing and all these other things. I'm As I've shared, I'm the son of a doctor. My family uh, so many different doctors and people involved with medical professionals. And after I decided not to become a doctor and I became a professional astrolo astrologer, I also studied medical astrology. And we had a number of 
uh, great people for Welcome to Planet Earth also writing about medicine from an astrological view. So I take these things seriously. And having come from New York City as a child, my dad was always, when I was really young, he would take me on some of his hospital runs. He was a general practitioner. He did house calls. His older brother was also a doctor, my uncle, and he had the same kind of thing. They were wonderful doctors. So seeing everything that happened in New York City earlier in the year, there's so many people who were saying it's a hoax, it's not really happening. Uh, believe me, it did happen. Uh, and these different places all around the country, all around the world, and what has been going on. For people, even now, I mean, you do hear some people and the way the, our government uh, has functioned or malfunctioned. Um, with the task force and what Mike Pence was supposedly going to do and Donald Trump and all the different things that happened in, in March. There were so many different announcements and press conferences and bringing out Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks. And then suddenly there's this guy, Scott Atlas, who's a radiologist. This whole kind of thing making the public feel uh, you don't know what's true or what isn't true. Um, different, choosing different doctors, uh, abandoning some of the uh, major science and major medical um, information coming out. And as, an, as a writer, as a reporter, since I was 18 years old at Michigan State University, I cannot just turn off the news. So I'm constantly having it on one way or another, different channels, looking at things online, looking at things through television, uh, listening on the radio, and, and wherever it may be, in order to get the max amount of information to know right versus wrong, truth versus fiction, and so on. So at any rate, I think that gives you um, an idea. The, the classes began in 1985. They originally on cassette tapes, believe it or not. Then they became CDs. And again, my daughter uh, had them transformed into MP3 files. So the whole series of 36 one-hour classes, uh, beginner, intermediate, advanced, on so many different topics where you'll be learning from so many great astrologers, Dane Rudyard, Dr. Mark Inman Jones, Charles Carter, uh, Evangeline Adams, Eleanor Bach, um, and on and on. There are just so many different astrologers who I learn from, and I'm able to put those all together in 36 uh, one-hour uh, lessons. And it's all available online, as well as lesson notes and charts. And it's at a price that's really unbelievable, $199. We used to we used to sell all this at CDs and mail everybody the books, and it would take people take a long time. We'd have to reproduce the CDs. And now everything due to automation and the evolution of how we do things, it's all available online. And it used to be almost four times the amount. So this is a great uh, deduction. And we won't necessarily always keep it at this reduced rate. So take a look. Astrology Shop, School of Planetary Studies uh, on Great Bear Enterprise. Take a look at all that. All right. Having said all that, there's my little pitch. As I've shared before, I don't like marketing. I don't like to do these things. But everything has changed in the world. And if I don't do it, then people might assume, oh, yeah, you know, orders just keep flying in one way or another. I have been fortunate to be on Coast to Coast AM. And I, if you sign up for that to be a, what's called a Coast Insider, and I don't sponsor them, but I've been fortunate to be on that show uh, 25 times, maybe more, with George Norrie, the wonderful host. Uh, and through my producer getting me on there. Hopefully, I'll be on again soon. Um, often, I'm on around the new year. Uh, this year, I was on twice, I believe, well, around February, and I was on on se September 28th. 
the night of the first debate, if you sign, if you go to Coast to Coast AM, and again, it's a phenomenal um, radio show. I mean, it's just phenomenal. It used to be Art Bell. You may know his name. He started it, then eventually retired. And then George Norrie took it over. So uh, I've shared many times, and I just feel a great kinship with George and the staff there and feel fortunate to be able to be on. So um, I just wanted to mention, if, if you become a Coast Insider, I think it's $5.99 a month or $6. You get their podcasts. And if you did become a Coast Insider, you would have access to all the previous times I was on. There were times, the first time I was ever on, it was an accident. Somebody, um, well, I shouldn't say an accident, but it was in August of 2004. And the producer, uh, Lisa, got my name and said, hey, would you be willing, uh, we've heard about you, you, know, you were doing a magazine, you're into mundane or earth astrology, would you like to be on? So I don't know who, who contacted her. I said, oh, sure, I'd love to be on. And before that, Art Bell had never had astrologers on. He was just against astrology. Now, eventually, I actually contacted Art Bell because he wasn't having astrologers on, and he gave me his birth information. And in one, I remember I put it into the magazine, Welcome Planet Earth. It was a short thing. And I said, I spoke to Art Bell, and he was uh, courteous enough. He's passed on now, bless his soul. Um, at any rate, he started the whole thing going. So this has been such an extraordinary kind of thing for the world on alternative subjects and metaphysics and UFOs and astrology and ancient teachings and uh, secret societies. I mean, you can go wherever you want to go. I mean, it's an extraordinary program. I just feel grateful to having been on. But if you did join that, then you have access not just to me, but whoever has been on in the whole history of the program. You can go back and, and access... Uh, and again, I've been on about 25 different times on a whole bunch of topics because so many of the times I am talking about, let's say, the chart of Russia, the chart of revolutionary Iran, the chart for Israel or a world leader like Putin or Xi or whoever it may be at different points and giving not usually predictions because I don't like to go and give predictions. Uh, although if I see something clear, I will talk about a particular day and a time and a planet like Uranus or Neptune or Pluto, a major uh, planetary alignment, for instance, like we're having Jupiter and Saturn together. So um, again, becoming a Coast Insider, to give all of them a plug, they've been very kind to me. I, I'm not part of their system, but they do invite me on, and I just feel very thankful. Hopefully, it'll be on again, and for a very low price, you can get all these podcasts and teachings and go back in time. So it's a goldmine of information. Okay, so having said all of that, I was going to call this part seven of the U.S., the astrology of the U.S. elections and next presidential inauguration to, uh, on January 20th, 2021. Now, again, there are dozens of charts in this. This will be now the seventh in that series. But I, I had a, an intuition about things because I'm going to be starting another series of podcasts and we are going into 2021, right? We've all looked at when, when 2020 was going to start the end of last year. I mean, there were so many different things that the world was focused on. In America, we had just had the ninth Star Wars movie come out. I don't know. I think it was almost exactly right now. It was I think it was December 20th, December 21. And there were all these question marks of the director and what ha had happened with George Lucas. And he had sold everything to Disney and made $4 billion and different kinds of things. But the last three films of Star Wars, they had two different directors and the question was whether the last one would be good and I think it was panned for the most part people didn't like it but that was about a, almost exactly a year ago 
and we didn't know that the <laughs> that the pandemic was starting, but it had started already. And now we know that it didn't just start in December. Then we found out that it might have been late November. And who knows now they're talking about maybe it was September of 2019. So while we didn't know what was happening here in this country and in other countries, meanwhile, in China, this was like an alarm bells were ringing as we, we learned. Wuhan and these other cities, they didn't know what was going on. To them, there was all these outbreaks of pneumonia and the hospitals were being over, overflowing. And then they had to figure out what it was. And I've done 13 of the podcasts on the coronavirus. But back a year ago, I did three podcasts about Star Wars because that was one of the big things I've written about. I won't get into the whole thing, but you go back in the podcast, Mark Lerner Astrology Radio. You'll see all these podcasts about Star Wars, about UFOs, about Roswell, about uh, the, the, this, the start of flying saucers is actually a chart for that. Um, so, uh, there's just so many different things and I'm just thinking back, it's a year ago and we were, it's almost like a naive time period. I mean, all of us are in a time war because everything has changed in our consciousness. One thing I didn't say about, um, the Chiron energy at the death of president Kennedy and how significant Chiron is for twilight zones. And I've, I've written articles about this, that Chiron has beautiful, incredible energies in terms of shamanism and mentors and deja vu and rainbow bridges and psychic sensitivity, holistic healing, uh, meditation, mantras, mandalas, uh, so many of the things, tarot, numerology, being an astrologer, uh, oracles, they're all connected to Chiron. I mean, not just exclusively to Chiron, but Chiron is a big factor as one of these centaur bodies. Uh, in this case, Chiron orbits between Saturn and Uranus. It's kind of the missing archetype between the 29-year identity crisis, who am I, where am I going, when Saturn comes back and we're 28, 29, 30. And then we, we have beyond that, we have Uranus, the first planet discovered 1781. America wins the war, revolutionary war against England, the British Empire, everything changes in the world and eventually creates a revolutionary archetype for eventually for countries uh, like the Soviet Union and uh, Mao in China and uh, Ho Chi Minh in, in North Vietnam and Fidel Castro in Cuba and so many other areas. They all look back to revolution of George Washington and the 13 colonies overthrowing um, the, the British Empire. And that's all connected back to the planet Uranus. So between Saturn, which has a 29-year cycle, Uranus, which is an 84-year cycle, lo and behold, back in 1977, Chiron's discovered, and it has a 50 to 51-year cycle. So in between Saturn and Uranus, and it moves in between those areas. Um, so that's one of the extraordinary things. Well, Chiron is also the twilight zone. And I, I've shared before, because I wrote a whole article, Rod Serling, who had actually invented it, was born... Uh, lived a Chiron cycle of 50 years. And when he was born back in 1924, Chiron was returning to its position in the United States birth chart from July 4th, 1776 at 20 degrees of Aries. And he has America's Chiron. So then he invents the Twilight Zone. And that's part of one of the archetypes because Chiron is what we might call a higher, a higher sense of time or uh, as we know in, in the Twilight Zone, and that if you watch that show on TV, or and we did as children, it, it was one of the, it was almost an absolute necessity. It used to be on originally on Friday nights. I think they eventually changed it, then it came back on the air at one point. But it was absolute, we had to watch that show. 
at that point as a child, I knew nothing about astrology. I didn't know that that uh, Rod Serling was born with his Chiron conjunct the United States Chiron, and then he winds up living a Chiron cycle of 50 years. You can't make this up. This just shows, as another example, Sir William Herschel, who, who discovered Uranus, uh, March 13, 1781, um, he actually lived 83 and three quarter years. And even though in astrology we say Uranus is an 84-year cycle, guess what? It's not 84. It's 83 and three quarters for the most part. The guy who, who discovered Uranus lived a Uranian life cycle. You can't make this up. Therefore, we have to sort of reimagine and understand um, it's not always people who discover things. It's more like the planet uses a human being to then be its channel at a certain point, And then that person lives out an archetypal life connected to that planet. Um, another person, I haven't studied his chart as much, but I know that Henry Ford automation, Model T, Model T Ford car, which was such a big deal in the area of um, automation. And again, unfortunately, he was a fervent anti-Semitic from what I've heard. He also lived uh, an 84-year cycle, I think pretty close to 83 and three quarters. So there's a lot of people, I'm not saying every person connected to that planet will live that lifetime, but that's one of the things if somebody is long-lived, in this case, Sir William Herschel. So that's just another example of that. All right. So why did I change the title here uh, that to make this part seven about elections and presidential inauguration? I started thinking, well, this is the last one of the series. Now, when I say it's the last one, would I do a part eight? Of course, I mean, it's possible because every single day we have the president of the United States saying, I haven't given up today, literally on Sunday, when people are, are wanting to, I guess, get Christmas presents and just mellow out and possibly be with their own family, and it's not a work day. Um, we hear the President of the United States saying, oh, the next big day is January 6th, when the Congress comes together to validate what just happened on the day of the total solar eclipse, when the electors just happened to meet in all the different state capitals, and the 306 to 232 electoral vote was confirmed. Well, that isn't enough for people on the right side there. I shouldn't say right side, the right wing side who keep wanting to overturn the election. And now we have Michael Flynn, former lieutenant, uh, well, lieutenant general in the United States who uh, wound up uh, being dismissed by Donald Trump. And now he just recently got a pardon and he's talking martial law um, along with this lawyer, um, a woman lawyer who wants to then wreak some havoc on January 6th, um, trying to get the Congress. It's not possible based on everything that will actually go on that day. So if you hear, oh, wow, they're going to try and um, overturn the election January 6th by getting a senator and a congressperson, if you can get one, one uh, congressperson and one senator to agree, then there's going to be debates and there could be a lot of hours of debates. Uh, depending on how um, focused or foolhardy or intent or dangerous somebody in a political position wants to be to just make a spectacle, what should be, if you go back to other of these Congresses, if you go back to when Al Gore lost 20 years ago in that contested election that went 36 days, Al Gore was the person who needed to preside over the Congress and he did everything 
exactly according to the rules, even though he actually was the losing party. So if you think of the right way to do something, the correct way to do something, you could go back and hear how he, um, there was some contentiousness on the Democratic side uh, because they were angry. The Democrats were angry. After all, Al Gore had a half a million more votes, the whole contesting thing of the hanging chads of Florida. But Al Gore happened to be the person in the Senate who was in charge, just like Mike Pence is going to be the person in charge on January 6th during a, a joint session in, in Congress, at least in the Senate. And he may, I think he's in charge of actually the whole thing. But the House and the Senate have some separation with each other, but there could be all this drama. So now the President of the United States and different cohorts are trying to use that date or create a ruckus on January 20th at the inauguration. And Michael Flynn is also um, trying to create, stir up all these things about martial law to overturn the election and all these different things. And it's scary stuff. Uh, I think of the movie Seven Days in May. Um, it, you should watch that movie if you if you have a chance. I don't know if it's on uh, online, but it's a fantastic movie. It, it's, it's one of the higher rated ones. It's a black and white movie uh, from the 1950s. Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, who who um, who did the, the gunfight at the OK Corral together, and both amazing actors. Think of Kirk Douglas, particularly in Spartacus. Uh, Burt Lancaster uh, won an Academy Award um, uh, for his movie *The Birdman of Alcatraz*. He won an Academy Award, I believe, for that one. He was also another uh, amazing movie. I mean, both of the guys were amazing, but in that movie. Seven Days of May. Of course, it was a storyline. Bert Lancaster plays a general who's a, who's wanting to overthrow a democratic or more middle of the road president. Now, very often, right now in the press, I'll often hear somebody says, "Oh yeah, Trump is in Trump and Michael Flynn are in this Seven Days in May situation." What they're talking about is this book uh, and movie and. Kirk Douglas, uh, I don't want to spoil the whole thing if you get to watch it, but I think you'd have to order the CD or DVD, probably from Amazon or whatever, and I'm, I don't even know if it's available. But it's a, it's a really well-done movie about the perils of democracy and the possibility of a general or somebody in a military position creating a coup. Now, what's happening is that these people on the right wing or what Donald Trump has been stirring up He's trying to make it sound as if there's due to the election and bogus voting and all the things that he's been talking about all year about, you know, the uh, mail-in ballots and other things that the whole thing was stolen from him and so on. And, of course, he tried to discount all the mail-in ballots on literally the night of the election because I watched that at two plus in the morning when he, I think, was at the East Room in the White House. You can go back and see it. He had everybody standing up and applauding because he, he was saying, I won Wisconsin, I won Michigan, I won Pennsylvania, because at that point, he, he, he knew what he was going to do, because the what had happened was those states had said, we're not going to count the mail-in ballots for another, another day, two days, three days. That's why it turned out that Joe Biden, once all the votes were counted, because those states had decided, no, we're only going to count the, the votes from people going in electronically, those were the votes that were going to be counted. So the president of the United States deliberately created this illusion in the middle of the night, November 4th, about two, two between two and three in the morning, 
because he was using the results at that point, and because Florida and Texas had actually gone to him, even though the Democrats did pretty well in Texas for a while, but uh, they were never going to definitely go to uh, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. You can go back and you can hear the speech, and every two or three minutes when um, Donald Trump would, would talk, again, his sons were there, Melania was there, you know, Giuliani was there, all these other people, and as far as I could see, almost nobody was wearing a face mask either. Uh, Might have been one or two people. I think most of the people were unmasked, and he just kept reading from a list. Oh, I won Wisconsin by some, you know, 100,000, 200,000. I won Michigan by such and such. I won Pennsylvania and went on and on. I won the election, and no matter what they're going to do, because he knew, he absolutely knew what the storyline was. And so they, they orchestrated this whole thing as a branding exercise to put it on TV so that Fox News and CNN, I, I saw it on either CNN, I wasn't watching Fox News, that's not my preferred station, but it didn't matter. That This thing of Donald Trump at two something in the morning, I have an exact time for when he started and he went on for 20 minutes or a half an hour because he knew if he got that out and was on TV, then that's part of the reason why so many people are saying, oh, Joe Biden stole it because they, they can go back where they recorded that particular thing. And they don't believe that the other votes that came in the mail were enough that Joe Biden, four days later on Saturday, November 7th, would, would get all these states like Arizona, uh, which wasn't anticipated. That was very close. Or Georgia. And again, Michigan and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin had all gone to Donald Trump four years before. And, and it took time, several days, because of the legalities of those states to take the time to vote to count all the votes, and those ballots were not counted for several days. Now, it's very logical. It's not illogical. It's very logical because so many votes had to be sent in due to the pandemic and people not wanting to get sick by going to a polling place. So at any rate, that's part of the reason why you've got tens of thousands of people marching around, uh, intimidating uh, the Secretary of State in Michigan or the governor of Michigan or different people going on state capitals, this whole crazy thing that's been happening in Georgia uh, with the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, and people attacking his reputation because he's not, he's not on the bandwagon with Donald Trump, even though he still supports him. So we have a pretty crazy situation. Well, the soul of America. So I wanted to use the term soul awakening, the, the soul awakening astrology of 2020 morphing into 2021. So as I came up with that title, I started thinking, first of all, uh, John Meacham, who's a great historian, created a, a, wrote a book called The Soul of America. There's also an HBO series, and I, oh, I shouldn't say series, a documentary. I was fortunate to watch it. It was excellent about John Meacham going around the country talking about the soul of America over the last couple of years. Um, he, he talks a lot about our better angels. I've seen him on TV many times. Now he is going to be working with or partly working with the Biden-Harris team. But this, this opened me up to something that is really amazing. And so I'm, I'm, it, I wind up now including the chart in this podcast for Ralph Waldo Emerson, born May 25 of 1803. Why Emerson? Uh, I'll explain that in a moment. So it's kind of the way my mind has been working with these podcasts over the last year or two. It has to do also with planets that are activating my own birth chart. And some of these are outer planets, particularly the planet Neptune. So one of the things that's happening is I get an idea and then it leads to maybe a chart and it leads to 
a phrase, in this case, soul awakening, and I start thinking immediately, oh, okay, if I, if I rename this, because it was going to just be the seventh part of the election and inauguration series, I started thinking, I don't want to call it that because we're shifting to 2021. So I get this phrase, the soul awakening astrology um, of 2020 morphing into 2021. Then I started thinking, um, soul of America. This incredible book by a great historian who knows a lot about American history and world history, the Civil War. He's just he's just a phenomenally educated um, person. And again, there is an HBO show called The Soul of America. So if you have HBO or you have a friend, then you could watch that. And it's very visual and stunning. And you can tune in that way. And again, he wrote a book. But then I started thinking, for whatever reason, the phrase, there's a phrase when I was a student over the years from Emerson, which is a foolish consistency, is the hobgoblin of little minds. This has always been a phrase that I've thought about a lot. And the reason, and, and again, this is, I'm connecting this to the idea of the soul. But when I was thinking about it, I wanted to make sure that it was Emerson and not Thoreau. Sometimes I'll confuse the two in my mind. I mean, they're both part of the transcendental philosophical movement in the 1800s. So um, I'll get to that in a moment. But what happened was, is that I wanted to make sure I knew the exact quote. The exact quote is a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of, of little minds adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. That's the whole quote. Comes from an 1841 essay called Self-Reliance. I'm actually going to refer to the Wikipedia in a moment because it's so important. And then, of course, we're going to move on to other things. But one of the, look, we're, we're in a, time period where we, we start thinking of what's the dark night of the soul, which is another term that goes back hundreds of years, or uh, the testing of human being souls, this, this idea of crisis. And of course, going back 102 years, CNN just put out in the last two days, and that's an extraordinary thing if you can watch it, about what happened in the pandemic of 1918. Now, there's all these different um, books, these great people on TV who have been talking about it. John Barry is the person who wrote about the great uh, the great Spanish flu or the great pandemic of 1918. He's in the show that Anderson Cooper winds up narrating and they have great films and they go back to 1918. And it was a Democratic president, Woodrow Wilson, who never said anything about it because we were in World War One. So I'm not somebody, when I look at Donald Trump, first of all, he is not a Republican, he's not a conservative, and he never has been, ever. So the fact that he's taken over the Republican Party and the Republicans have kowtowed before him, or as people say, have been drinking the Kool-Aid, which goes back really to this horrific phrase of uh, Jim Jones and um, uh, the, the, the whole terrible thing in Guyana um, with his People's Temple from San Francisco and 900 people dying there, over 900 people drinking Kool-Aid. So uh, now there's this term about the, the Republicans drinking the Kool-Aid, in a sense, being poisoned, being part of a cult of personality by Donald Trump. But let's be 100% clear, please. I, I think I'm preaching to the choir for most people listening to me, but Donald Trump has never been a conservative ever. He's never been a Republican ever. He's If he's been anything, he's been a Democrat um, or an independent way off in what I call illiberalism, but um, sure, he's he's condemned different things. Um, he's been 
racist in terms of real estate, like with his father and uh, all kinds of things of civil rights abuses. So you could say on one level, but that's not being conservative. Um, that's being uh, just a negative human being and somebody who um, does not care about equal rights. But nevertheless, this person has never been a Republican, never been a conservative. Um, so having said all of that, this idea of the soul of America and the testing of ourselves as a nation and whether or not we can ward off uh, over militarization and this fight between right and left. Um, and there are dangers ahead, as I've shared. I don't want to say it again, but in the future, I'll have to share more about Pluto coming back in the United States birth chart three times in 2022, 246, 247 years, which is the Pluto cycle after the Declaration of Independence. That's in our future. And that'll be happening during um, the Biden-Harris administration. And now we know that everything that Donald Trump is stirring up on the way out um, with these right-wing different groups around the country, this is an ever-present danger. And it's being stirred up, and it's very seditious, and it's very horrific to even see this happening. Now, we go back to the, uh, it turns out, uh, Waldo, he actually was under the name Waldo. It's kind of weird to think we call Ralph Waldo Emerson. I think he actually, according to this uh, from the Wikipedia, was going by Waldo. But I am putting his chart in here. It's a fairly exact chart. Um, it's definitely for his day of birth, May 25, 1803. So let me just mention again, um, somehow or another, I decided I need to know the exact quote. Well, here's a little bit from the Wikipedia before I mention about why his chart is so significant and how this connects up to this particular reading. So in the Wikipedia about self-reliance, it says self-reliance is an 1841 essay written by American transcendentalist philosopher and essayist Ralph Waldo Emerson. It contains the most thorough statement of one of Emerson's recurrent themes, the need for each individual to avoid conformity and false consistency and follow his own instincts and ideas. It is the source of one of Emerson's most famous quotations, quote, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines, unquote. This essay is an analysis into the nature of the aboriginal self on which a universal reliance may be grounded. Emerson emphasizes the importance of individualism and its effect on an individual's satisfaction in life. He stresses that anyone is capable of achieving happiness simply if they change their mindset. Emerson focuses on seemingly insignificant details, explaining how life is, quote, learning and forgetting and learning again, unquote. Just to go on here a little bit, because his chart is so amazing, and again, this is completely unplanned. About an hour and a half ago, if somebody had said, oh, by the way, near the beginning of part seven of the series, you're going to be talking about Ralph Waldo Emerson, that was unplanned. Okay, that just came up. So in the this is again from self-reliance in the Wikipedia. And this is just from the beginning. I don't want to go too long here, but it's so significant. So this is under the history portion about this particular um, story or book that he wrote, self-reliance. It says, the first hint of the philosophy that would become self-reliance was presented by Ralph Waldo Emerson as part of a sermon in September 1830, a month after his first marriage, his wife Ellen was sick, and this is part. Of, this is why I'm reading it. His wife Ellen was sick with tuberculosis. Uh, again, thinking about now with COVID and uh, pneumonia, as it started a year ago in China, everybody's going to the hospital. Oh my God, they're thinking there's an outbreak of pneumonia, but they didn't realize it was COVID. Okay, so back to this little uh, story here. 
His wife, Ellen, was sick with tuberculosis. And as Emerson's biographer, Robert Richardson, wrote, quote, immortality had never been stronger or more desperately needed, unquote. From 1836 to 1837, Emerson presented a series of lectures on the philosophy of history at Boston's Masonic Temple. These lectures were never published, uh, were never published separately, but many of his thoughts in these were later used in Self-Reliance and several other essays. Later le lectures, such as the American Scholar and the Divinity School Address by Emerson led to public censure of his radical views the staunch defense of individualism and self-reliance being a possible reaction to that censure. Self-reliance was first published in, in his 1841 collection. By the way, let me just add this. It was in the 1841-1842 time period that Jupiter and Saturn started conjuncting every 20 years in Earth signs. Now, th this is interesting because, again, so much of the, the energy field or the life purpose with Ralph Waldo Emerson and then Henry David Thoreau, who was born about 14 years later, who then looked up to a Ralph Waldo Emerson, connected to this kind of return to nature, this naturalism, like connecting up to the earth um, and the beauty of the earth and the wonder of the earth. So that's all part of that kind of world. And it's interesting that Self-Reliance came out in 1841 as Essay's first series. So again, Jupiter, Saturn started their sequence of every 20 years in earth signs, which just is ending now. Okay, so Emerson helped start the beginning of the transcendentalist movement in America. And you can read more about the transcend transcendentalist movement in America on Wikipedia and other places. And it, it can be easily forgotten, but this was actually happening before the, discover uh, be before the discovery of Neptune, which was in 1846, but between Uranus's discovery and Neptune's. The other thing that we'll get into, which is extraordinary, is the first two asteroids, the first two main asteroids, Ceres and Pallas Athena, had just been discovered in 1801-1802, a year just before Emerson was born. So I'm going to get into that in a minute, because that's part of this extraordinary story here, and we'll get into that in a moment with the chart. So to finish up two little paragraphs from Wikipedia, Emerson had a very large background of religious affiliations. His father was a Unitarian minister. Emerson eventually followed in his father's footsteps to become a minister as well. Uh, as well, Emerson's religious practices can be viewed as unconventional. Now think here again, Uranus, unconventional and his beliefs, non-traditional. Emerson understood that individuals are inexplicably different and ideas are constantly changing. He, he encouraged religious individuals to, quote, breathe new life into the old forms of their religion, unquote. And let me pause again. Think about the fact that we're about to have Jupiter and Saturn at the beginning of Aquarius. I first wrote about this in our magazine 22 years ago. The dawning of the age of Aquarius takes 90 plus years. And I put out the chart for the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction that's happening tomorrow at 1.22 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Jupiter-Saturn for the first time going into Aquarius or, or together in Aquarius since 1405. Okay, January... January 25th, 1405, was the last time Jupiter and Saturn conjoined. At that point, it was 23 plus of Aquarius. And this whole cycle of Jupiter, Saturn now in air signs, what's called a great mutation in the air signs out of Earth, which will last for 150 to 180 years, that cycle started March 12, 1226. These cycles go 794 years of Jupiter and Saturn conjunctions for about 180 years or so in each element. 
Fire, earth, air, water. Fire, earth, air, water. The whole cycle takes 794 years. 1226, March 12, Jupiter-Saturn make a conjunction 2 plus Aquarius. Add 794 years to 1226, and what do you get? You get now, 2020. So it's kind of like clockwork. It's pretty astounding. March 12, 1226, Jupiter-Saturn-Aquarius. Then January 7th, 12, uh, 1286, 60 years later, because Jupiter-Saturn have 60-year cycles. There's another um, uh, conjunction, Jupiter-Saturn-Aquarius at A+. This is January of 1286. April 1, 1345, which is almost, well, let's see. Let's, let's see how many years that's later. That's 59 years later. Uh, Jupiter and Saturn together at 19 Aquarius. And then the last time that Jupiter and Saturn ever conjoined, okay, this is official, January 25, 1405, at the 24th degree of Aquarius. So tomorrow, Jupiter and Saturn together at one degree, zero plus of Aquarius at the winter solstice. It's now, let's see if I can add the 595, 615 years. 615 years since the last Jupiter-Saturn exact conjunction. But the whole cycle of Jupiter-Saturn in air signs began in 1226, 794 years ago. So that also means that what will happen is 20 years from now, in two th well, let me get my list out. October 31, 2040, Jupiter and Saturn together. That'll be Halloween of 2040, 18 degrees of Libra, Jupiter and Saturn. April 7, 2060, Jupiter and Saturn again, 20 years later. Zero plus of Gemini, which will be an exact trine to where they are now. So uh, 40 years in the future, on April 7th, Jupiter and Saturn will come together for that future time. I'm not going to be here unless I'd have to be really a lot older, but that generation will will be talking about, they'll say, wow, here it is, April 7th, the day my dad was born, 1915, 2060. Uh, Jupiter and Saturn are at one degree of Gemini, and then people say, wow, back 40 years ago, excuse me, back uh, 40 years ago in 2020, there was the first Jupiter-Saturn conjunction of this mutation at one degree of Aquarius, and this Jupiter and Saturn are trining that Jupiter and Saturn. The next time that Jupiter and Saturn are going to come together is going to be March 15, 2080, 60, almost 60 years from, uh, from now. Jupiter and Saturn will come back again at 11 plus of Aquarius. That's the next future Jupiter and Saturn. It'll be 11 plus degrees further on in the zodiac, and that will be almost 60 years from now. It'll be about, what, 59? See if I get this right. Uh, something like that will be almost 60 years in the future because Jupiter has a 12-year cycle approximately. It's actually, as I said last time, 11.86 years uh, to be exact. So what happens is um, it turns out that when, when you go 58, 59, 60 years, uh, at a clip, then Saturn comes back twice and Jupiter comes back five times. So that's how that works, why Jupiter and Saturn conjunctions are happening approximately every 60 years and they're also happening every 20 years. Okay, so the final paragraph here before we look at the chart, the transcendental movement flourished in New England and proposed a revolutionary new philosophy of life. Now, again, think of the term revolution um, because we'll talk about some of the Iranian elements of this uh, in his chart. This new philosophy drew upon old ideas of Romanticism, Unitarianism, and German idealism. Some of these ideas pertain closely to the values of America at the time. These values included nature, individualism, and reform, and can be noted in Emerson's essay. Okay, so that's that. 
Now, why did I, okay, so what I'm leading up to is we're all having to deal with our soul realities as well as our personalities. I believe very strongly that we are all souls or spirits having human lives. Can't prove it. I studied reincarnation and metaphysics more than the 47 years I've been into astrology. I studied Tarot even more, the Kabbalah, things like that. I've created, fortunate enough to create two Tarot decks, Inner Child Cards with Isha Lerner and Baseball Tarot, believe it or not, with Laura Phillips. Baseball Tarot, unfortunately, you can't find that anywhere for various reasons. Uh, or maybe you could find a copy somewhere on Amazon. It's possible. Uh, but Inner Child Cards, if you go to our website, there is a promotion for it, and you can definitely get inner child cards, and it's been unbelievably successful. It's based on fairy, fairy tales. So Ish and I were together at Fintorn. She's the mom of my two daughters. We're very close. We're also doing some podcast work together. So um, that is an extraordinary tarot deck, inner child cards. It's been translated, thanks to Isha's work, particularly around the planet, into many different languages. I don't even want to mention how many, and that's been out for quite a while, inner child cards, uh, using fairy tales, and um, it's just a beautiful concept, amazing cards, great book, and Isha in particular has promoted it a whole lot, So, but you can look at an ad on our website at Grape Your Enterprises, or you can just go to Amazon.com, inner child cards, three words, and it's a great, it would be a great gift for the new year for yourselves to give to a friend, anybody into tarot, astrology, metaphysics, numerology. So please think about that. And again, there's a lot of soulfulness in all of that um, as well. So the, the part of the reason I'm even bringing this up quote, let me just mention this before I get into the chart. I've always thought of that quote in a, in a kind of backwards way. Emerson says um, that a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of, of little minds. Okay, then he has a little bit at the end. First of all, the funny thing for me was, what's, why would he say hobgoblin rather than goblin? I mean, when I start thinking of language, I think, what was the term hobgoblin? It's interesting in Wikipedia, they actually have a reference for a hobgoblin. Apparently, hobgoblins were fire spirits or connected to fire in the hearth. Okay, hearth fires that a fire spirit or some kind of an entity was connected. But then according to the Wikipedia, when you look up hobgoblin, in the rise of Christianity, um, the hobgoblin became more mischievous rather than helpful. But if you go back to devas and angels and so on, a hobgoblin was more like a devic force uh, animating fire and connected to hearth fires. But to me, what was funny about the quote, what, what I like the quote, but I was trying to always think about it. Why would he say that? Okay. First of all, what's the difference between a hobgoblin and a goblin? Who knows? Okay, so that was always kind of humorous. But what I thought about was, what's the opposite of what he's saying? Okay, not so much what he's saying. He's saying a foolish consistency. So in other words, being constantly consistent in your philosophy or your attitudes, or your behavior patterns is, is a kind of weird thing of little minds. In other words, if your mind is small, if you're not thinking higher enough, if you're not what I would call a genius or open to a lot of ideas, then you're going to be overly uh, consistent. You're going to keep doing things by rote and you won't really grow or evolve. So 
What he's implying, though, is that a genius is inconsistent, okay? If a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, then an amazing inconsistency or an, an inconsistency would be kind of the keynote of a great mind or a mind that isn't little, that isn't small. And that's the way it actually is. When you think of Einstein, when you think of these physicists as Stephen Hawking or different people, a Galileo, Sir Isaac Newton, and all of their philosophies and ideas and speculations or people like Rudolf Steiner and Sears, Alice Bailey, people, different people who've been channels for uh, real channels for higher uh, teachers, masters, uh, uh, being an ammunicist for uh, or a channel, a seer for incredible knowledge. These people often live very uncomfortable lives because they're channeling, bringing through incredible knowledge and ideas. So we often have um, geniuses and they can be inconsistent. So that is where I started off there. But at any rate, to get back to reality, we are going through a dark night of the soul. We're being tested in our souls. There is the soul of America, uh, both book, and HBO uh, with John Meacham. And I've entitled this, um, this soul awakening of uh, the soul awakening astrology of 2020 morphing in 2021. So get this. So here's, a, you'll see Ralph Waldo Emerson's chart. You can study it on your own. But again, I have never looked at his chart before. I didn't even know what his birthday was. Okay. I just knew the quote. So I do the chart and then here are the things you can look all around. I'm not going to talk about everything, but if you look at the chart, you'll see again, there's the folder at greatbearenterprises.com and it's in the section of Mark Lerner Astrology Radio, just so you know where it is, um, Astroscope. And there's an area that you can click on, it's a folder, and each of the podcasts has different charts and so on. So this would be part of um, podcast 69 when it comes out. You'll see Jupiter at 25 plus of Virgo, and this is really amazing. 25 plus Virgo in the 12th house, Jupiter. In the 9th house, you'll see Mercury at 25 of Gemini, right? So in one of my programs, a software programs, I'm able to not just create the chart, but I can go back in time through a kind of ephemeris thing. So I was able to go back to the month of May of 1803. He is born May 25, 1803 in Boston. The time is rectified from... Um, from from his father's diary of his birth to 3.15 in the afternoon, but that's not going to affect what I'm about to say. Turns out that the Jupiter that he has at 25 plus Virgo, which by the way is conjunct the, the, the top of America's birth chart for July 4th, 1776, where Neptune overhead. Now we know um, from my adding other planets and asteroids, there's a, a, a long-term planet over 300 year cycle called chaos not making this up, chaos is conjunct our Neptune at the top of America's chart. And the exact top of the chart, based on rectification that happened decades ago by Barry Lyons, who I work with, with Welcome to Planet Earth in the beginning, um, the top of America's chart, what we call the midhaven or the uppermost point of elevation, uh, what we might even consider where we have a downflow of divine energy coming into our country, um, is 25 degrees of Virgo, 24 plus of Virgo to be exact. Well, Emerson's Jupiter is within one degree of that spot. But guess what? It had been going retrograde for four months before he was born. And on the day he was born, May 25, 1803, Jupiter stopped to go direct, exactly when this guy took his first breath. 
Now, I didn't even look at his chart until a couple hours ago. I luckily having this information. Well, that's important because Jupiter considered the king of the gods, having a lot to do with philosophy of life, having to do with kind of the big picture of things. There's so many different keys of what Jupiter can represent. Again, if you want a refresher, go to astro-businesskeys on our website or just read more about Jupiter. And it's connected to providence, benevolence, the power of positive thinking. It's fundamentally optimistic. So people who are born in there's only two dates in a calendar year when Jupiter can be stationary. It, it's going to be stationary and go retrograde. Then after four months, it'll be stationary and go direct. He was born the day after four months of Jupiter going retrograde. Then Jupiter stations. When a planet is stationary, it's more powerful. It's almost like think of a laser beam from that planet and its principles to Earth and to humanity. He comes into, into the Earth, um, Earth plane. And his Jupiter is exactly squaring Mercury, which is interesting for somebody who is talking about not being, don't conform, you know, do your own thing in your own way, be an individual, part of this transcendentalism movement. And where is this Jupiter? Jupiter is in his 12th house, which is the archetypal Piscean house. And you know, you may know how this works. Um, regardless of what zodiacal sign is on what house in your own chart, because it could be any of the 12, there is archetypal astrology, which is if you think of Aries, the first sign being on the first house cusp of a chart, and then Taurus, the second sign being the second house cusp, no matter what's in, in your 12th house, in this case for Ralph Waldo Emerson, he's got Jupiter there. And guess what? He has Uranus. And the planet the, the planet that had just crossed over the eastern horizon at the time of his birth was Uranus. And Uranus is definitely a planet of revolution. It's definitely a planet of radical change and of intuition. And his Uranus is in Libra. And his Uranus is within one degree of trying to the United States uh, Uranus from July 4th, 1776, which is why I wanted to keep mentioning about the Uranus. He also has Mars in Leo at, at seven plus of Leo. The moon is approaching uh, his Mars. He has moon conjunct Mars overhead. Um, his Mars and his Uranus are exactly sextile or 60 degrees apart, which is a supportive alliance. The Jupiter that's in his 12th house is in the archetypal Piscean region of metaphysics or of the inner world and of inner guidance. So again, his Jupiter is extra powerful, even though it's not in its home sign of Pisces or Sagittarius, it's in its home house of the 12th. And as his chart connects up to the U.S. chart, which is one of the ways in which we get a sense of why some people become famous or infamous, is often because, I'm not saying always, but often their chart is connected to the U.S. chart or in some major cycle that affects the whole world. And in this case, his Jupiter is not moving, it's stationary, it's in a primary position in his chart, and it also just happens to be at the midhaven of the United States chart. His rising Uranus, which had just gone over the eastern horizon, is, is in a flowing relationship to the U.S. Uranus by trying within a degree, and he has Mars and Uranus sextile six degrees. And by the way, the moon and Mars in the upper part of his chart, which also make him a public figure, because he has, if someone has the moon overhead, they're more likely than not, I'm not saying always, but in mundane or earth astrology, the moon has a lot to do with the public, mass consciousness. So here's a person who became incredibly famous and well-known through essays and books and preaching and lectures, and his moon is above conjunct Mars. Where is it? On the north node, the, the fate destiny point for the United States chart. His Mars is actually almost precisely on the north node for the United States. If you don't study the U.S. chart and you're tr trying to understand Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or Nancy Pelosi or anybody who becomes famous, whether politically or 
uh, in entertainment or socially, culturally, in religion, philosophy, whatever it may be, or infamously, their charts are connected to the United States. And the main U.S. chart is the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. Now, I could go on here. For instance, the second house, you'll see Neptune, the trident figure, 22 Scorpio. Why is that significant? Well, he's part of a transcendental movement. His Jupiter and his Neptune, well, they're pretty close to a sextile themselves within a couple of degrees. But guess what? His Neptune is exactly 60 degrees to the United States Neptune, which is 22 degrees of Virgo. So when you think of the transcendental movement in the 1840s in particular, this kind of romanticism, it was only a couple of years later that Neptune is discovered, September 23rd, 1846. And that brings in so much. I mean, there's the gold rush, uh, communism, socialism, but so many other things as a higher octave to Venus. Neptune has a lot to do with love. It has a lot to do with compassion. The seances and different things that were happening, uh, particularly uh, in the Lincoln White House and other kinds of things that were developing, photography that was developing, very much connected to Neptune. But the mass movement of people, particularly the gold rush, happened right after discovery of Neptune. Um, the, the Communist Manifesto came out. There were socialist revolutions in Europe and so on. Well, again, so Ralph Waldo Emerson, born way before this in 1803 on May 25, is Neptune is, is going, is, we didn't know Neptune <laughs> At that point, we couldn't even place in the U.S. chart because it wasn't discovered until 43 years after he was born. His nodes, his, his own nodes are 27 Aquarius and 27 Leo. That happens to be the United States moon, Pallas Athena conjunction. And we now know Quayor, another faraway planet named after a Native American tribe in Los Angeles, Quayor a planet uh, discovered uh, 20 some odd years ago, which is used by a lot of astrologers now, that's also at the same degree. The United States birth chart has three celestial bodies, the moon, Pallas Athena, which was discovered in 1802, um, and Quayer, they're all in one degree. Remember, there's 360 degrees in the zodiac. When I was doing um, the initial podcast uh, back in 2019, the reason I connected up to the United States secondary progressions of the sun and, and Pallas Athena is because they were in exact conjunction. They had never been in a conjunction before for the United States. They won't come again for 400 years. So that's why I brought in Eleanor Bach and all her teachings on the asteroids and particularly Pallas Athena having to do with knowledge and wisdom and justice, um, as well as so many other the, of the Pallas Athena principles connected to the immune system and also protecting our nation, our defense department, to protect the safety and security of the country. Computers, this whole thing with hacking has a lot to do with letting down our guard regarding Pallas Athena. So Emerson comes in, 1803, his nodes are exactly conjunct the United States moon and Pallas Athena had just been discovered. So again, I could go on here. He has Pluto at eight plus of Pisces. Why is that important? That's our series. The largest asteroid is the only stationary body in the U.S. chart from July 4th, 1776. And Ceres has just returned there now. Okay, this is the third time in the last year, Ceres returning for the United States. That happens every four years. Well, I do Waldo, Ralph Waldo Emerson's chart, and he has Pluto, slow moving, eight plus of Pisces right at that spot. His Sedna is exactly where my son is in Pisces, exactly. I mean, this is like 1 60th of a degree. Sedna has a lot to do with the goddess from Inuit um, uh, mythology uh, as the goddess of the, the depths of the 
um, waters and the coal depths and connecting to all kinds of sea creatures down there. So his Sedna is right there, and that's where Neptune is transiting now. And but this is the this is the amazing thing. There are other connections I could go on about this. He's he's actually a sun sign Gemini. I haven't even mentioned that. Um, with a wide trine to his Uranus and a nice sextile, a 60 degree alliance with his moon. So he's born with a great sun moon connection, a waxing moon of 60 degrees. Uh, there are many other things in the chart, but this is the one that, that I find amazing. Oh, let me mention this other thing before I forget. I, I'm sorry to be so enthused about this, but it's like as if this person's chart is just like appeared magically. He's born with Chiron, back to Chiron, wounded the wounded healer, deja vu, rainbow bridges, the shaman, mentor energy, holistic healing, mandalas, meditation. We're about to have the winter solstice. Sun and, and Mercury have just made a conjunction in the last 24 to 48 hours at the end of Sagittarius. But guess what? In the winter solstice chart, which is in my global hotspot, which you can read complimentary on Graper Enterprises, the sun enters Capricorn. That's the whole point of the winter solstice, the start of winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Sun, uh, the sun at zero Capricorn. We call it kind of the midnight sun because in terms of, uh, in terms of its declination, it's reaching the lowest point. And that's kind of the idea of the rebirthing of the sun over the next several days. This goes back to the whole idea of Jesus being born at uh, Christmas time. Jesus the Christ is the Savior. It actually goes way back thousands of years before the life of Jesus, um, of kind of the solar hero, anyone who would represent the rebirthing energy of the solar life force as the sun in the Northern Hemisphere, where so many cultures and civilizations have been. And we go back with astronomy and astrology thousands of years, even back to Atlantis 10,000 uh, 10, years ago, and even longer, according to Edgar Casey. So Chiron just happens to be, right, from Ralph Waldo Emerson, where? Zero of Capricorn, where Mercury and the Sun have just been. And if you look at the chart that I have on Graper Enterprises in Global Hotspot for Winter Solstice 2020, you'll see, again, Sun conjunct Mercury. The Sun is at zero exactly of Capricorn. Mercury, the messenger of the gods, the power of the mind. And we have Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of the great writers and teachers and speakers in American history, part of transcendentalism, and his Chiron, the wounded healer, the idea of being a shaman and a mentor and kind of coming out of the twilight zone, his Chiron is there. But here's the bigger thing. This is even bigger. This is even bigger, almost as big as Jupiter not moving. Here's the thing that's extraordinary to me. I have shared so much about the asteroids and Eleanor Bach, one of my, the great teachers, my main female teacher, Dane Rojar, Dr. Mark Edmund Jones, Charles Carter, Michael Erlewine. There's so many different male individuals, Alan Leo, um, I go on and on, you know, from who, who were fabulous astrologers of the 20th century, the 19th century, and so on. But I actually learned so much in a physical way from Eleanor Bach. So many of these people are extraordinary and unique. And Eleanor Bach had her own newsletter, um, Planet Watch, she passed away, bless her soul, in the same year that I'm going to be reading from later, again, 1995, about Great Bear. That's what I, I read the article, Jupiter's exact 83-year cycle. Um, so get this, the bottom of this chart, very close to the bottom, which is roots and foundations, you'll see the two first asteroids that were discovered, Ceres, the backward sea with a cross under it, and Pallas, the dime with the cross under it. By, by the way, I'm just reminding you, if you have not ordered four asteroids in Chiron, 
which is a great report. I think it's only $25, $30 from our website, from the astrology shop. Please think about giving yourself a gift or for somebody else. You'll learn all about Pallas. You'll learn all about Ceres, Pallas Athena, Juno, and Vesta, and Chiron in the natal chart. It's not going to do transits for now. You'll learn about their mythologies. You'll learn about their archetypes. You'll learn about what signs they were in, what houses they were in, and their main alignments. It's a great report to get going on the asteroids. But I talk about getting going. 1973 in Lower Manhattan, Chelsea area, uh, Eleanor Bach, who's, who has just come out with her the changing everything in astrology as far as I'm concerned, to balance the feminine with the masculine. She comes out with a hardcover series of the ephemerides of the asteroids. They have been discovered in the early 1800s from 1801 to 1807, but they had never been put into charts. Nobody had ever sort of put them in. I guess somebody along the way had figured out what their, what their zodiacal positions was, but suddenly, finally in 1973, she comes out with this book and just, that's when I, I'd already gotten into astrology the summer before, but then when I started actually teaching, um, I, I've shared before, when I first started doing astrology, I advertised in the Village Voice in New York City, which would come out every week, and I put an ad in there, and I think it was $35, and I explained this once before. I mean, I would do hours of work handwriting charts, studying the natal chart and the transits and the progressions and writing a whole thing up. This wasn't even done on cassette tape. I would write all this up. Then I travel by subway, usually sometimes by car, but on subway to people in the five boroughs. And they, people who, who saw my ad, they'd call me up. Oh, can you do a reading? And they'd, they'd pay me $35. And I just did it as a learning experience. And I would sit there often for a couple of hours and if it was in Manhattan, then I take the $35 and there was a great restaurant downtown. Uh, it was a natural restaurant. And that also eventually, I, I think I shared this before, when I eventually got to Fintorn, I ran their kitchen for eight months. I was not a chef, but at Fintorn, you could be a focalizer of department and everything worked there on group dynamics. So I could be the focalizer of a group of people and everybody was contributing. And so we were making breakfast and lunch and dinner for 150 people every day and did this for eight months. I'm, I'm just saying Findorn was a magical place. But before that even happened, Eleanor Bach, and this I had forgotten about, who's a sun sign Capricorn, it turned out that when I was looking at her chart not so long ago, because I actually read some of, see, she, she wound up doing all of her own things. But because of the connection we established when I uh, was one of the students, I was 23 years old, learning astrology and we went every month to her her brownstone she'd bake cookies for us it was all fun i mean it really did happen it seemed like another life and there were other students there and it got me you know going and it turned out i knew she was a capricorn and my mom was a capricorn but just recently i looked at her chart again and i said oh my god she's born the same day as my mother i mean it was four years later but it was exactly the same day my mom was born and i just thought recently this is this is uncanny because even with Dane Rudyard, even though he was a sun sign Aries and, and I'm born with the sun in Pisces, the reason that Dane Rudyard became so influential for me was, and this is something that's important for all of you, if, if let's say you like Dane Rudyard, you like Evangeline Adams or Eleanor Bach or who your favorite astrologers are, Alan Leo, these different people, look up their charts. If you know enough about astrology, figure out where their charts are activating your charts. Are you sharing the same sun sign? Is that person's moon on your Mercury or on your sun or Venus? 
So you can do all kinds of things with that. I did this. In fact, I will read you a, another story I did. I did this, this with classical music uh, early on. And I wrote a whole article about how you can tune into whether it's Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, um, all these different fantastic composers through the different um, com uh, through the different orchestras, concertos and different things. You can figure out how certain music will enlighten you in different parts of your chart or illuminate different planets by selecting different classical music. Now, you can do the same thing with with rock stars or or country music or different bands and so on, although bands have multiple people, but particularly individual singers or pianists or um, whoever it may be, to same thing you can do with artists as well, you know, by looking at their chart. And if you're an artist, whether it's <laughs> painting like Leonardo da Vinci or some other type of form, you want to look at their astrology. And it turned out that Dane Rudyard's Mercury was not in Aries like his sun, but it was rising ahead in Pisces at five degrees, and my own Mercury is at five of Pisces. And when I learned that Rudyard had the same Mercury, or I had the same, I should say, to, to kowtow before Dane Rudyard, because I shouldn't put myself first, Dane Rudyard's uh, Mercury is there at five of Pisces, and I have the same Mercury. I thought, that's why when I'm reading his books, and that was my experience, it would be like I'm somehow the words are jumping off the page. Why are Dane Rudyard's words and his phrases and his paragraphs, why am I consuming book after book by Dane Rudyard? What's going on here? And it was really fascinating. Independently of my own Mercury, it's fascinating anyway. And there's so many people who have loved Dane Rudyard and learned from him because he did bring in psychological astrology and humanistic astrology and so many other things. He was really a Renaissance man because he was an artist, he was a musician, he was a novelist and an astrologer. Um, and his first book, The Astrology of Personality, was actually published by Lucis Publishing Company, which, again, are the Alice A. Bailey books. And I've been touting Lucis Trust and Lucis Publishing and the Arcane School and World Goodwill and Triangles because I worked there and I, and I ran their Beacon magazine for a couple of years uh, after college and before I went to Findhorn. So I'm very connected to their, to their organization. Last time I shared some quotations from Glamour World Problem because it's a book that almost never, nobody was buying because it sort of tells everybody, look, you've learned all of these cosmic principles about the seven rays and about all these incredible esoteric arcane ideas. After all, the Tibetan master DK is the teacher for Alice A. Bailey for 30 years. And before that, for about another 30 years, um, did the same thing um, for Helena Blavatsky, who founded the Theosophical Society in 1875. So, you know, there are these different teach teachers. And by the way, I've decided to share also the chart for the Dalai Lama. And for Again, I wasn't planning to do that, although I printed his chart and I've been studying the Dalai Lama for the last couple of years because I have this book of his that I got at a, a used bookstore, Dalai Lama, The Path to Tranquility, which is a daily guide, daily wisdom. So, you know, that's something I've been working with and I never planned on that because I've been so tuned into the teachings of the Tibetan master DK. And also, I'm going to mention again Michael Erlewine, who created so many different things, not just all the matrix software we use, but he's a great teacher across the board, particularly about heliocentric astrology. And his teacher, main teacher, just recently passed on, who's uh, a well-known um, Tibetan um, Buddhist teacher as well. So again, I know Michael, who's on Facebook a lot, Michael Erlewine, E-R-L-E-W-I-N-E. He shares a lot on Facebook in case you want to follow him. At any rate, 
what's going on about Pallas and, and Ceres. This is really unbelievable. So Ralph Waldo Emerson, and then we're going to move on to these other areas where I won't spend nearly as much time. If you look at the bottom of the chart, you'll see the two symbols for Ceres and Pallas. They're both at 16 plus of Capricorn. You'll notice they're within three minutes of arc, 16.00 minutes for Ceres and 16.03 for Pallas Athena. They're both retrograde. But guess what? By going into the ephemeris in this program and going back to 1803 to May 25, again, we learned earlier that Jupiter made an exact station on that day. The reason this is significant for me is you, when you're doing astrology like I am, as I said, 47 years ago, 46 years ago, when I'm starting and I'm advertising the Village Voice, there's no software. You, you've got to do everything by hand. It's all mathematical. You're using what are called the ephemeris, tables of houses, there's logarithms, you're needing to make sure the sun is exactly, you know, as you, you've calculated that you put in the right house, you're trying to figure out which house system, there are different systems of dividing the 12 houses. There's equal, there's porphyry, there's placidus, there's coke, there's campanus, there's regiomontanus, there are all these systems. Now they're, everything's automatic. You just choose a system. Um, and usually I'm, I use coke, there's a reason for that. Um, but at any rate, the houses, how you divide up a chart into 12 houses. In Europe, they don't always use that. Some places, they don't. in fact, early on when I got into astrology, they were working with things called the 90-degree dial. There are so many things that have evolved in astrology, not just in terms of the software, but in terms of how we look at charts. Often in the Middle Ages, there were square charts. Uh, in fact, squ square-looking charts are still used in India, uh, where they have a whole different kind of astrology. I mean, it's still based on the same sun, moon, planets, asteroids, nodes, and every, they have different names. And and fundamentally, they're working with a little bit more of what's called the sidereal constellational astrology or zodiac. It's different from Western. That's a whole other uh, can of worms, so to speak, in the field of astrology. Uh, constellations versus, versus signs, they have the same names. But nevertheless, w what I found was that on the day he was born, not only is, is Jupiter stationary, but Ceres and Pallas Athena are exactly conjunct, exactly together. Now, here's what's so amazing. When he's born, only those two asteroids had been discovered. Juno was not discovered until December of 1804. And, and Vesta, the, fo the fourth of the main asteroids, was not discovered until 1807. In March, I believe it was. So here's what's amazing. Ralph Waldo Emerson, with his connection to nature, to individualism, to not conforming, if you think of nature and the variety of the history of nature, I mean, look, there were dinosaurs hundreds of millions of years ago. I remember as a child, it's so fascinating to read about dinosaurs. And then the realization struck me, oh, how horrifying. It actually happened on this planet. I mean, I know that may sound weird. Well, what other planet would have happened? But the point is, you know, then the dinosaurs are exterminated. They recently in the last 20, 30 years, figured out it happened um, in the Gulf of Mexico area near Yucatan. You know, they, they've been able to look at the depression of the seabeds and different things, and they have calculated whatever the year was. I mean, it, or, or time period, it's like 600 million years ago. And you think of Stagosaurus and Brontosaurus and uh, uh, Tyrannosaurus rex and so many of the things that, you know, as children we've thought about and uh, Jurassic Park movies by Steven Spielberg. So at any rate, um, what's astounding to me is at the base of his chart, the two asteroids that have been discovered, because he's born in 1803, they're together exactly 
in the root part of his being. And he's part of this, it's not just transcendentalism, he inspires Henry David Thoreau, you know, Walden Pond, return to nature, which is more of the natural order of things as part of transcendentalism. It, it reminds again of, of kind of the Native American um, ideas and the, the different tribes and different principles and ideas that were here way before Christianity, way before the extreme groups that we call the Puritans and all the different people came from Europe. They were actually, uh, and this is, I'm not exaggerating, you go back to the history, the, the people came here on the Mayflower and these other ships and so on, and particularly came into the New England area where eventually Ralph Waldo Emerson was born. His father was a minister. He himself um, was trained to be a minister before he changed a lot of his ideas. And a lot of the groups who founded the country, sort of beginning the, the, the Christian Judeo energy field, we, you know, the, the, the coming of, of white individuals from Europe, these were people who were rejected. They were ostracized from England and France and Switzerland. Go back in your history books. They were sent out of there because their views were too extreme. So they were sent to the to the New World. And that's where we got our start. And you could go back and read before the beginning of the uh, before the French and Indian War, which just preceded our American Revolution. You go back to the early 1700s, go back to the late 1600s, and then you read the, the kind of fire and brimstone in these teachings, particularly in New England and those 13 colonies. Okay, so the chart is amazing. And later, just so I don't forget, I decided to include Dalai Lama later, who's, we'll get into his chart, and I'll talk about something else toward the end, because it turned out, well, I'll share more about this later, but just know that the Mercury position for Ralph Waldo Emerson at 25 Gemini, remember, Here's a guy who is a sun sign Gemini. His son is in the eighth house and he has Mercury uh, behind his son. He has actually Venus and Aries rising ahead of his son, which makes him, if you, if you, re, if you listen to my uh, Astrology in Five on the podcast, it's all about my book, Mysteries of Venus, that I wrote in 1986. And I'm, I think I'm up to 22 podcasts there about the esoteric and amazing significance of Venus on many levels. So he would be what we call a luciferic. Venus can be, in, and this is true for each one of you, Venus is either rising ahead of your sun or behind it. And this has to do with Mercury too. Mercury can be either rising ahead of your sun or behind it. Rudyard talks a lot about this. Mercury ahead of your sun is called Prometheus, foresight. If Mercury is behind your sun or rising after, it's called Epimetheus. And in mythology, they were brothers. So Prometheus who is often considered the first man stole fire from the gods as part of actually the myth with Chiron, which is very interesting. Anyway, it turns out that uh, if you look at the chart, um, not only is Ralph Waldo Emerson a sun and Gemini person, so we think of communication, he did all these amazing uh, speeches, he's famous in terms of, of, of these different essays, and particularly these different quotations. And then his Mercury is at 25 of Gemini, uh, Epimetheus, rising after his sun. But it's the same exact Mercury as the Dalai Lama. And when I get to the Dalai Lama's chart, it's like, again, I wasn't planning to do the Dalai Lama's chart and put that into this particular reading, but I've been thinking about it and I had printed his chart out months ago, had it on my desk here. And there's a particular magazine I'm gonna emphasize from what's called the Lion's Roar or Lion's Roar. That's like the animal lion with an apostrophe S, Roar, second word, R-O-A-R. -R. And I picked up this magazine at a grocery store and it's all, it's to commemorate his 85th birthday, the Dalai Lama. So then it's sitting on my desk here. 
I'm focusing, and I've spent, what, a half an hour on this? I wasn't planning on doing this at least a half an hour, maybe more, talking about this person's chart, because he is a famous person in our history. They have exactly the same Mercury, him and the Dalai Lama. So, and again, Venus is very strong in his chart, and that would make him what we call Lucifer-like. Now, not Lucifer in a bad name. If, if Venus is rising ahead of the sun, Lucifer meant, meant light bearer, bearer of light, L-U-C, from Latin, having to do with a light bearer. This goes back, again, to the story, the biblical story. But Lucifer is not Satan, and it's not the devil. It's a different kind of energy, and it's gotten mixed up in history. But the, the name, the L-U-C, comes out of light and light bearer. And so if Venus is rising ahead of your sun, it's an emissary of light because it's kind of like Venus is rising ahead of the sun. If we go back to dawn at, uh, on Ralph Waldo Emerson's birthday, which would have been, what, 6 in the morning or 5.30 in the morning at that point in May, then what, what happened was is that before the sun rose, Venus would have been rising. And so if Venus rises before your sun, it's in an earlier sign, it's considered luciferic. It's a light bearer. It's leading the way to the sun then rising. If you have Venus uh, behind the sun, it's called Hesperus, meaning setting in the west. So, for instance, on um, it turns out that if you have Venus behind your sun or rising after, then on the day of your birth when the sun set, Venus would still be in the western sky after sunset and would represent uh, the term Hesperus actually means setting in the West. That's where the, where the word comes from. So that's it on Ralph Waldo Emerson, bringing in transcendentalism, bringing in the idea of a soul awakening. And for me tonight, I changed the name of, when I changed the name of this particular podcast, I did it before getting into the whole Ralph Waldo Emerson thing. I, I did it before deciding that I would add the Dalai Lama's chart. So a change of a word, the quotation about a foolish consistency, the hobgoblin of little minds, all of this led to Ralph Waldo Emerson, such an important figure in our history, very connected to the asteroids, the first two, very connected with so many planets in his chart as an incredible philosopher that we need to study his ideas. We need to think about John Meacham now carrying on that kind of work with the soul of America, where he's talking about our better angels. And getting into the Dalai Lama, who's exiled from his own country of Tibet. And the story of that, which happened when he was, uh, let's see, he, well, he was 20, 24 years old uh, when he had to leave. He was born in 1935, and he left in 1959 when the Chinese invaded there. But there's, I think it was 1959, but at any rate, um, it's just a fascinating story. And of course, the Dalai Lama has been in exile, mostly living in India. This magazine that I'll mention, I'll put the, um, the image of that into our folder so you can see that. And it's a special commemorative edition. It has beautiful pictures, a great storyline, the whole history of the Dalai Lama, but I am going to include his chart. Okay, so just with rapid succession here, because I do want to um, get into toward the end about the Great Bear. There are plenty of other things, and the rest of this I, I am going to share for a while on some of these things, but I'm just going to keep doing this to the best of my ability. We're at about the one hour and 40 minute mark, and I guess I'm guessing here we'll, this could be two hours and 30 minutes, so hold on. Okay, winter solstice chart. In a couple hours, is going to be the winter solstice. Um, I just wrote this piece a couple of days ago. The chart, okay, how this works is each place experiences the winter solstice. Now, the winter solstice happens at an exact time. 
On the West Coast here in the United States, it's 2.03 in the morning. But the chart that I use that's in Global Hotspot on Great Bear Enterprises for 5.03 because I do all those charts for, the, for our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. So fundamentally, the way this works in mundane astrology is that the main chart of the winter solstice as America experiences it is based on Washington, D.C. Now, in actuality, where I live in Oregon, I can do the chart exactly for here where I live. Or wherever you are, if you're an astrologer, you can do the chart also for the exact moment if you want to understand the next three months of what the winter solstice is bringing into your life or your family's life or your partnership or whatever it is or your business. You would want the astrologer to not just do Washington for the nation's capital, but to do it where you are experiencing it or where you have your work or your life. But in Washington, D.C., the reason this becomes so phenomenal is they fit again the goddesses, just like with Walt, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson having an exact, absolutely precise series palace conjunction on the day he was born, and those asteroids were the only two that had been discovered at that point, is to me astounding. And that I would find it tonight. And right this weekend, Ceres is coming back to where it was when the United States was born at 8 of Pisces. What are the odds that that would be happening? And I would kind of discover Ralph Waldo Emerson all over again. Speaking of all over again, that goes back to the Yogi Berra thing. And I do want to, and his chart is going to be, well, I did include his chart last time, but I didn't talk about it. So I'm going to talk about that because that was a deficiency of mine. Yogi Berra, the, <laughs> the whole idea of it ain't over till it's over. And when I did bring up that concept in the last podcast, it's because I love baseball so much. And he meant a lot to me growing up as a person and not just be, because of, these uh, strange sayings of his, but I did explain that the last time I didn't talk about his chart and he has an amazing conjunction that I want to mention and a couple other things. So I will share that about that in a moment. So just briefly, the winter solstice, keep in mind, the solstice is our winter in the northern hemisphere. And meanwhile, in the southern hemisphere, that's their summer. So we think about it up here in a very you know wintry way, Santa Claus, snow, um, the different kind of cultures and themes that we have, and we sort of forget that in the Southern Hemisphere, they're having their summer. But in Washington, D.C., the chart that you'll see that uh, if you go to Global Hotspots on complimentary on our website, the chart for Washington, D.C., Juno is exactly rising. Venus in the first house of self-expression at Seven of Sagittarius is right on America's uh, birth ascendant. Uh, Sedna, this faraway outer planet, connected to the Inuit goddess of um, ruling the seas and the uh, deep underwaters that are very cold, Sedna is setting, close to the Pleiades. Vesta is overhead opposite Neptune exactly. Vesta, that, that asteroid is very significant, has a lot to do with sisterhoods and fellowships, but also safety and security. And we've had this whole issue of hacking by the Russians, even though the president of the United States once again says, oh, it could be the Chinese. He's always saying it could be somebody else other than saying it's the Russians. Even Secretary of State Pompeo gave an interview to Mark Levin the other day, who's a right-wing conservative on the radio, and Pompeo said it's the Russians. So, I mean, come on. And they've been doing this for years and years. Look, Vladimir Putin is KGB. That's what he did in East Germany in the Soviet Union. It's still the same guy who's running the country. Vladimir Putin, whose chart I've shared a lot on Coast to Coast and in other articles along the way, his son and Saturn are conjunct in Libra on the United States Saturn. His chart shows a very good rapport as buddies with Donald Trump. That's fine. That's part of the reason why Donald Trump and he do these sort of 
extracurricular kind of things. There's no translators there. Trump wants it all to be private. He obviously doesn't want anybody hearing what he has to say or not say. So he does whatever it is. And of course, we, our reporters and our, um, our safety security people have all been upset about um, that whole approach, and, and rightly so. We, whenever Vesta, and Vesta is going to be very powerful at the inauguration because it's going to go stationary retrograde in the 24 hours before the inauguration. I've already shared about this. I'll probably have to share it again because even though this is really the last part, the seventh part of, of this series on elections and inauguration, as we get close to the inauguration, Vesta will be not moving. Um, it will be very significant because it's making an exact square to the United States Mars. And um, Vesta, as I shared in a previous podcast, was very powerful when Lincoln gave his um, second inauguration, March 4th of 1865, five weeks before the Civil War ended, five weeks also before he was assassinated. And Vesta was very significant in that particular chart. And then later in the year, in July 4th, was when the Secret Service came into being in 1865. And Vesta was extremely significant in that chart. And eventually I'll share much more about Vesta and safety and security. In the meantime, Ceres is also right at the bottom of the chart for uh, Washington, D.C. So the, the goddess energies are unbelievably strong when calculated in particular for Washington, D.C. There's so many other things going on here. And again, of course, I've already shared about Jupiter and Saturn, and this is the big thing even more than the winter solstice that Jupiter and Saturn are coming together. I already shared a little bit about this uh, just now, uh, just a few minutes ago, talking about Jupiter and Saturn. Now, again, 22 years ago in um, the dawning of the age of Aquarius takes 90 plus years, which was the cover story of an art, uh, of this article, I put out the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction at 1.22 p.m., Eastern Standard Time, which now is tomorrow in Washington, D.C. So that's important. I just want people to understand this is I'm not a Johnny come lately to this. Um, and in fact, I shared before I was going around the country with each learner at that point be, when she was pregnant with our, our first daughter and we were going through the country and we were creating astrologers from Findhorn. We created a slideshow, believe it or not, a real slideshow using slides. And I drew up by hand color charts particularly that was in 1979 that we did this tour going from California through Santa Fe and then through um, the, the middle of the United States. Um, in Michigan, we went to Pennsylvania, we went to Cincinnati, we went to Boston, we went to different places and we were doing tarot actually as well as astrology. But we did a slideshow the next 20 years, including the, Jupiter, the three Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions in Libra which happened 1980 into 1981. The anomalous uh, conjunctions in an air sign uh, in 1980 and 81, the end of 80 into 81, when, when Ronald Reagan became president and he almost died and John Lennon was murdered in December of 1980. And again, the Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions had started in 1842 in earth signs and they happened again in 1861 when Lincoln was assassinated, then 1881 again, Jupiter and Saturn together. And Garfield was murdered in the 1901, 1900-1901, we had Jupiter and Saturn again. McKinley was assassinated. Teddy Roosevelt took over, the youngest person ever to be president at age 42. And, of course, he's on Mount Rushmore and played an amazing role in our history. Then, uh, again, Jupiter and Saturn together right after World War I in 1920. And, again, we had um, the death of a president there. And, the, and then... Uh, 
Calvin Coolidge taking over. I mean, it took a couple years uh, before that particular president died, and then Calvin Coolidge took over. And then, of course, in the 1940s, we had, again, Jupiter, Saturn conjunct three times in Taurus in the 1941 time period. And at that point, uh, Roosevelt uh, was in his, let's see, the end of his second term. And then he, he won again uh, in 1940 and became president again in 1941. So Jupiter and Saturn came there. And then, uh, of course, he died of a cerebral hemorrhage uh, in January 1945. And then JFK came in and he was inaugurated January of 1961. And in February, just a month after that, Jupiter and Saturn came together in Capricorn. And then he died and he was assassinated. And then of course we had Ronald Reagan, Jupiter and Saturn together three times in Libra. And actually in the month of March of 1981, during the second Jupiter-Saturn conjunction at the end of that month, on the day of a Sun-Mars conjunction, John Hinckley almost killed him. He survived. And there was another Jupiter-Saturn conjunction. And then in May of 2000, in the year 2000, we had the famous Bush-Gore election that went 36 days. So each one of these Jupiter-Saturn time periods have been significant. For a while, they were considered the curse of Tecumseh that went back to a curse against, um, against the United States and for all the military things and are not allowing uh, Native Americans to have, you know, we would go back on the different treaties and Tecumseh was a famous Native American who cursed America. And some people felt, well, the Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions and the Earth signs were killing our presidents. But again, um, that didn't happen with Ronald Reagan. And in 2000, when we had Jupiter and Saturn together, uh, it, it also didn't happen. Uh, although Clinton had been impeached, he wasn't eliminated from office. He did, uh, in a way, destroy Gore's chances in, in many respects. And so that might have been part of that curse because Jupiter and Saturn did come together in May of that year. And then after 36 days, the Supreme Court five to four because of Florida wound up giving the election to uh, George W. Bush. And even though George W. Bush survived for eight years, we did start having the war in Iraq, the second Persian Gulf War and the invasion of Afghanistan. And we're still in Afghanistan. We're still in Iraq. In fact, today there was an attack Sunday today, December 20th um, on our embassy in Iraq. That just shows, again, so there is a kind of curse energy. There is something going on with Jupiter-Saturn cycles. So again, Jupiter and Saturn, this is very significant. Uh, I'm going to put the chart in again. I put it in before. The other thing is I discovered the heliocentric chart. Jupiter and Saturn actually came together, and I have this in a previous podcast in this series or several series ago. You'll see it. It's the heliocentric version of Jupiter and Saturn. They came together on November 2nd. Well, what was November 2nd? That was when the dawning of the election. That was the day before the election. And even on election day, Jupiter and Saturn were still together because they hardly moved from a heliocentric position. We actually have two Jupiter-Saturn conjunctions, one from the solar standpoint. That happened on November 2nd. And now we have the one geocentrically that everybody's talking about at zero of Aquarius. One thing, though, that's important. Now, again, I'm not analyzing the chart right now. It is fairly similar in nature to the winter solstice chart. But again, when you see the Jupiter-Saturn chart for Washington, D.C., the planets are going to be in different areas because it happens at later on the day. There's also a void moon that day. There's also a first quarter moon. There's a whole bunch of things. If you read my winter solstice global hotspot article and also the calendar cosmic calendar description in the app, um, if you don't have the app, then that's another reason to read to, to get it to, uh, at this point or to be you won't be able to go back in time to see it. 
but you go forward in time. So the cosmic calendar is, is talking about Jupiter and Saturn together, but we also are on the verge of the third Mars um, Eris conjunction. Eris, like Sedna, is a faraway planet discovered January of 2005. Eris is connected in mythology as the sister of Mars. She was a catalyst of the Trojan War and so many other things. We're just learning a lot about Eris, but it's slow moving in Aries. And in August, uh, which was the 100th anniversary of, of women having the right to vote, when the Democrats and the Republicans were coming together for their conventions, we had the 100th anniversary of women having the right to vote. And uh, Mars and Eris made a conjunction. And then on October 4th, they made the second conjunction, the same day that Pluto was stationary, Mars and Eris together at 24 of Aries. And now they're going to make the third and final conjunction this year. And this is going to be the day after. So on December 22nd, we're not done with this incredible winter solstice, Jupiter, Saturn. We're getting Mars and Eris to be together. And then the day after that, on December 23rd, Mars and Pluto are squaring each other. So this is a whole series of energies. The winter solstice starts a three-month cycle in the northern hemisphere. That's powerful in and of itself. There's a long void moon. The Jupiter-Saturn conjunction is actually taking place inside the void. And this conjunction chart has its own energy field. You can do it calculated for London, Paris, Madras, India, Tokyo. In, you can calculate it for the southern hemisphere. You can, can calculate it for your own town. And it will have a slightly slight different variation. Now, Jupiter and Saturn will still be at the same degrees. The sun will be exactly where it is. But the house positions, what's above and below, what's rising and setting, they will shift. So that's what people want to take a look at in this particular chart. But it is very significant. We won't have another Jupiter-Saturn conjunction for 20 years. The fact that they're both in Aquarius, the third and final air sign, a sign of universality. And that is starting this wave of 180 years of energies in Aquarius, in Gemini, and Libra, which is way different it's more of the power of the mind and thinking, group energy, the whole shift that we're having into virtual reality and doing things more online and just enhancements and all kinds of gadgets and changes with electronics. And, and a lot of this is dangerous, though, as we see with hacking. Uh, this is one of the big problems and people stealing people's identity or getting into different websites or making believe they're, they're you and you're not them and the dark web and things like that. So there as much as we want to think hope, which I do, of Jupiter and Saturn, Saturn has energies that are different than Jupiter, and they have different cycles. So we need to sort of see what's going to happen here. Now, again, also in Global Hotspots, you'll see the Total Solar Eclipse article, and that's very powerful. I won't go over that, but you can read more of what I wrote. That's the previous one. Okay, the previous one, uh, which happened, the new moon of Sagittarius was a total solar eclipse. One of the big things about that, I mean, there's all kinds of amazing uh, activities from December 14th. Again, the electors met on that day. Venus and Juno were in a conjunction, and their conjunction was right on the Sun-Venus conjunction for Joe Biden. And I didn't mention it last time, but that's very important that on the day he got the 306 electoral votes, he was having a Venus return. Venus was on his Sun, but it was joined by Juno. Uh, and again, the Venus-Juno conjunction from a week ago at the total solar eclipse was in a sextile, very favorable relationship to Jupiter and Saturn at that point. Many other key uh, energies are going on in that particular chart, and you want to look at that story that I wrote of that time. Okay, so I'm going to mention something else. 
And I'm not going to be able to do do justice to this. And I really, really want to do justice to this story. So this is going to be a separate thing. What I will tell you is this. I'll make it a nutshell. And this will have to be a separate podcast. The other day, I saw the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the one from 1978, was on TV. So I put it on record. It's the one with Donald Sutherland, uh, Brooke Adams, and Leonard Nimoy, among other people. It's a redo from the, the classic from 1956, I guess it is. Uh, I have this all written down on these notes. Yeah, 1956 with Kevin McCarthy playing the lead. And again, the concept here is these spores, these pods, uh, and it's fantastic the way they do it even in the 1978 movie. By the way, that movie was released now, December 21, December 22nd, 1978. So that's what, 42 years ago, right now, in the United States, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I'm not even sure which station I... Oh, I know, it was on Flix, not Netflix. Flix, that station. So it's probably going to still be on there. And I never wanted to watch this one. Why? Because I saw the original one in black and white with Kevin McCarthy playing a California doctor. Now, Kevin McCarthy, I mean, I'm going to have to give you part of this. This is so extraordinary. It kind of gives me chills, good chills, kind of a <laughs> chills because when, when something is really a truism, what I want you to, let me put it this way. You should watch the movie and think of it as a morality play, which was done around like the Shakespearean times. They come up with different plays and theaters, a kind of metaphor for other things. And this is so connected to COVID. It's so connected to the pandemic. If you see through it and understand and you get away from, oh, there are these pods, they're coming from other planets and they're duplicating people and there's all this kind of crazy behavior and people are not really who they are and people are saying things like, that's not my wife, it looks like my wife, but it's not her. And then these pods are growing and then people fall asleep. I mean, you, many of you probably have seen it. It's the, fir the, the first one that's black and white is really considered when they do these reviews uh, in the movie, uh, the movie app that I go to a lot, uh, International Movie Database, I think it's called IMDB. I sometimes get those letters wrong. I think it's the International Movie Database, IMDB. It's a great little app and it's free. You can just go on there and see different you know, movies and TV shows and different ratings. And when you read about the original uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original one, uh, it gets like nine or 10 people are saying this is the best science fiction movie of all of them and so on. And it was, it sort of was created as an antithesis to the McCarthy era and the red scare, because the whole concept here of, of what was happening. And this gets back to Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is the amazing thing because in the lead with Donald Sutherland in this particular one, and Jeff Goldblum is in the movie too, by the way, and he goes on to Jurassic Park and all those other movies that we've seen him in over the years, The Fly and so on. And Donald Sutherland has been in everything. He was just in The Undoing, which is a, another extraordinary performance by him and uh, Nicole Kidman and other people, uh, Hugh Grant, and that was on HBO, limited series. Uh, it's pretty intense, but it's really well done. And so that was just on, Donald Sutherland was on there and he's been in so many movies. Of course, he's the, the, the father of Kiefer Sutherland who became so famous for 24 and some of these other shows um, about politics as well. So we all know Kiefer Sutherland and again, his father, Donald Sutherland, who is more in my generation. At any rate, um, 
this whole thing of individualism versus conformity. And I had realized it until now, that's the whole Ralph Waldo Emerson theme and about uh, little minds versus big minds and uh, being consistent versus being inconsistent and that geniuses are, can afford to be inconsistent because they have open minds. So they're open to different things and often there's an inconsistency as they struggle to sort of bring in these incredible ideas that are macrocosmic of the big picture. So all I can tell you is this, Leonard Nimoy mentions the phrase in this second version that he plays a psychiatrist and he's trying to tell these people before he actually becomes infected. And that's the whole thing. I don't want to give the whole thing away, but what's happening is people left and right are falling asleep and they're becoming, what's happening is they don't have any emotion. That's the whole thing. This takeover of this, these alien pods, this alien consciousness. And it reminds me also of a book, if you can get your hands on Colin Wilson's The Mind Parasites, I read it a while back. It's not a long book. Colin Wilson is a famous writer. He creates screenplays for England and involved with science in different ways. And it's an amazing book. And I remember reading about it, uh, reading it. Uh, it was recommended to me by some folks connected to Fintorn. I read it uh, uh, mostly on an airplane flight. And it just astounded me. And it has a lot to do with the idea of, of a contagion mentally. Uh, that he he wrote this maybe 30, 40 years ago, forty something like that. And of course, he was probably influenced by things like uh, the pandemic, uh, the Spanish flu of 1918, and some of the other different things with polio and just yellow fever and all the different kinds of illnesses that have gone around the scourge um, around the world. Uh, so I don't know exactly where he got his ideas from, but it was more as if we're infected mentally. And I started thinking about the mind parasites and watching the invasion of the body snatchers, where even Leonard Nimoy starts mentioning uh, this thing. This is toward the end. I won't spoil it for you. Where Leonard Nimoy, uh, who has now been infected, originally he was trying to play this role of a psychiatrist who's telling everybody else that they're crazy, that they're thinking there are these pods and people are being duplicated. And he's acting as if, you know, the, from a psychological standpoint that you're all wacky and crazy. Then when he gets taken over by this uh, strange consciousness that is devoid of emotion, and that's the whole thing, that people are not loving, they're not hating. It, it, part of the, the scary thing in the movie is that it's, it's humanity is being taken over. And now what you're seeing is sort of a slice of life and just pods in a California time, town. They're even mentioning at one point, and then... And then a train is going to Medford and Eugene and Portland and Seattle, and I'm living in Oregon and I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, I have never, I, I watched this movie a long time ago. You know, maybe it was in the movie theaters and I saw it, but I haven't watched it in decades. This is the second version. In the first one, I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't, I don't think they mentioned Medford or Eugene or Portland or Seattle, but they added that in the second one. And I'm thinking, this is uncanny. And then Leonard Moy says, we, we, this is about where this invasion is coming from, from another world or from the universe. He says, um, we're come, we came from a dying world. And he says, we drift through the universe. This is pretty much a direct quote. We drift from the universe, from planet to planet, pushed on by, get this, the solar winds. And as he says, the solar winds, I think to myself, solar winds, wherever I heard the term solar winds. Now, of course, there are solar winds coming out of the sun electrons, radioactivity, and so on. That's the firm in Texas that has been hacked into 
by the Russians. And now we know that they've gone into commerce, they've gone into nuclear, they've gone into homeland security, that have gone into the treasury. There's about eight different governmental organizations at the very least. And it's definitely not the Chinese. It's definitely the Russians, whether it's Cozy Bear, or whatever their group is, just as they've been doing for years and years. And of course, there are uh, there, there are Chinese hackers. There are hackers from Syria, from North Korea, from Iran, from all over the place. Anyone who's trying to get into American systems and and undo things or create mischief or get secrets. And this is constantly, it's part of espionage, it's part of spying. And by the way, this is very connected to Pallas Athena because Pallas Athena is also related to the immune system of the human body and our defense department and trying to protect our safety and security. When, when you think of defense, and this goes back to mythology, part of what Pallas Athena did was she gave Perseus a, uh, the shield that was polished so that he could kill the Gorgon Medusa, the, the creature that had all these snakes, which would turn people to stone. And so part of the mythology was Pallas Athena, who was, who was a goddess of war, a goddess of crafts, a goddess of knowledge, a god, goddess of genius, and so on, goddess of justice, also was a designer of all kinds of implements that could help these heroes and heroines. And one of the mythologies is that she gives him, Pallas Athena, to Perseus to go into um, the caves and he's able, instead of looking at the Medusa, he looks in the shield and the mirror reflection and uses a sword to cut off her head because this particular creature had been turning people to stone. That was part of the mythology. At any rate, it's a storyline, but it's connected to Pallas Athena, Athena and her genius to give a hero a, a technique to look at things with a shield rather than looking directly. So it shows her ingenuity. And this is what Eleanor Bach shared so much about. And I read these two articles that she wrote in the 1990s from Welcome to Planet Earth because she was so kind to do that in addition to her own work. Whereas getting into not only these kind of ideas of Pallas Athena representing computers and technology and defense and the immune system in the body. And so that's very connected to keeping us safe and secure. The same thing in terms of COVID, working with our immune systems to keep them strong through nutrition, washing our hands, working with the masks and so on. And that's what's been so stressful to have teachers like Eleanor Bach and learn about Pallas Athena and Vesta and the different asteroids and planets and how they all work together. At any rate, at some point, this whole connection, it turns out that Kevin McCarthy, the actor, is the same name of the the minority leader of the Republicans when I heard, you know, Kevin McCarthy. And again, he played a, a kind of little role in the second movie. He was the star of the first one where he played a country doctor in the original black and white one. So again, bringing in medicine, we've got this kind of strange um, invasion of these of this consciousness and people are sort of changing in terms of the behavior. And that's what's been happening in our country in politics. I mean, we have a situation now and it's been developing. We're on the verge of a potential civil war if it gets out of hand, where even the president of the United States keeps having people around him, like Michael Flynn, who he just pardoned, saying things like the other day, oh, America's declared martial law 64 times. There's an insurrection act. You need to do these things, which would be, again, a seven days in, in May kind of scenario, this most dreaded thing that has ever been thought about, that we would have a rogue president and a rogue leadership who would want to hold on to power so much that they would either create martial law or create a coup and use the military. And that's what we're seeing, which is very scary that it's even thought of. Now, the odds that this is going to happen here, I shouldn't say it's remote, 
But again, it's not likely. Thank goodness that even Mitch McConnell has finally congratulated the other day, whether you saw it or not, um, he actually congratulated Joe Biden as president-elect, congratulated Kamala Harris, saying one of our senators will be the first woman vice president. Now, again, it's an accomplishment for McConnell, not that we have to be overjoyed. He's the same person who's blocking uh, relief to Americans for months on end because either he wanted Donald Trump to just win or, again, he, he's... I couldn't even say he's a conservative. I don't even know what is going on except for the idea of power corrupts and power corrupts absolutely, which is part of having plutocracy of people who are in office for long periods of time. I'm one of these persons who believes in term limits. I believe that the way the country started, particularly if you think of representatives, they're in for two years. Now, instead of, it should be that you were represented for two years, that's it, you go home, you go back to a regular life. Because our system is kind of similar to what happened in England. In other words, creating our country and we don't have a parliamentary system. We have a tripart system of the executive branch, the legislative branch and the judicial branch. And it's different from England, but nevertheless, they have a House of Lords and that's like our Senate. And then they have a House of Commons, which is which is similar to our House of Representatives. So the founding fathers, the different people, Washington, Franklin, Jefferson, Madison, different people forming our government sorted all this out to the best of their abilities. But now we have a situation where people, you know, are in the Senate with seniority and running committees, and that means power and influence and thing, shenanigans and things like that. One of the big things going on in the, in the Georgia race, which is a big deal for January 5, which is the day before that Congress gets together in the joint session to finally declare that what happened on December 14th and happened on November 3rd and November 7th when, when Biden and Harris were officially considered, well, I shouldn't say officially, but announced as uh, president-elect and vice president-elect November 7th, then that became validated by the electors on December 14th. That should have been the end of it. And then we're going to still have drama on January 6th if, they're, if the right-wing extremists want to create this drama, but it's not going to overturn the election of what happened. But on January 5th, the day before, we're going to have the Georgia runoffs, and there could be two senators that could go to the Democratic side, which would give the Democrats the leadership in the Senate. It's not likely, but it could happen. But what's happening also in Georgia is that we have kind of an unusual situation uh, where uh, where the two Democrats, one Democrat is calling out his Republican because uh, one of the one of the big issues is whether or not senators should be able to own stocks and David Perdue, the Republican who's refusing to debate with John Ossoff, apparently bought and sold different stocks, getting information that he shouldn't have had, kind of insider trading things, and David Perdue has not answered that. So that's a whole issue there. At any rate, back to the Kevin McCarthy thing. Kevin McCarthy, the famous actor from 1956, um, we now have a Kevin McCarthy who's the minority uh, leader, the Republican, in uh, in the house. And the weird thing is Kevin McCarthy, the actor was born on the West coast in Seattle and Kevin McCarthy, the house speaker now the same name, he represents California. And again, the movie, both movies take place in California. And I think it's amazing though, that Kevin McCarthy, the actor played a, do a country doctor who has to go into the city and deal with all of this stuff. And it's just an extraordinary kind of fairy tale, um, metaphor, morality play, where a lot of the phrases in the 78 version, again, which was released exactly now, December 21, December 22, I find that pretty remarkable, 
where they're mentioning the name Solar Winds uh, by Leonard Nimoy, again from Star Trek fame. Uh, Star Trek had come out in 65, 66. I was a Trekkie in the first year, and then I had I got a job in a drugstore, and I couldn't watch the second year on TV. So I never watched it after that, although I did see some reruns. But it's amazing to have the, the Vulcan uh, logician, uh, Leonard Nimoy, playing a psychiatrist in this particular movie, talking about uh, solar winds that, that we're, we came from uh, a dying world and we drift in the universe from planet to planet pushed by the solar winds. And, with, and I just saw that the other night. And while on t the regular TV, they're talking about this, this uh, organization or this computer software firm. And that's how the, so the Russians, I almost said the Soviets, got into all of our systems through this talk about a Trojan horse through this organization. And we still don't know the implica implications. That's probably going to be kept from the American public, just like JFK, the UFOs, and so many other things, because they won't want to tell us how much information has either been stolen uh, in this particular way. Okay, so we're now at two hours and 15 minutes, and we're moving along here at a good pace. So get, get this. Michael Erlewine um, who has done so much, I'm not going to be able to do all the things I want to do about, about him. So that's going to be another time. But Michael Erlewine has created so much about heliocentric astrology. Michael Erlewine, E-R-L-E-W-I-N-E, -E -E, had what's called the Heart Center in Ann Arbor. When I first got into astrology in 1974, 1975, I went out there. I was learning so much. He was doing stuff with heliocentric astrology. We had a bit of a debate. I didn't understand what he was doing or why he was using that particular kind of thing. But he created and has created a phenomenal amount of research. And one of his teachers is a fellow named Theodore Lanscheid. And, and if you can follow uh, Michael Irwin on Facebook, then he often, almost daily, will share all kinds of amazing insights about heliocentric astrology. So because I also discover, didn't discover, I just have a heliocentric ephemeride book that has all the heliocentric positions. And again, we can actually create charts here in, my, in Great Bear. If somebody orders their reports or other things, if you say, hey, could you send me a heliocentric version of my chart? You know, I'd like to see it or see what it's all about. And one of the uh, classes in uh, the advanced series of my School of Planetary Studies is on heliocentric astrology based on the work of Michael Erlewine, who sees all of these different archetypes like grand triangles and T-square triangles and different archetypes so that Michael feels very much that our, our astrology chart based on the sun, heliocentrically, on the same day and the same time we're born on Earth, which we, which we all follow, our geocentric charts of the sun, the moon, the planets, the asteroids, the nodes, the houses, the aspects, and the so on transits, but from a heliocentric viewpoint, what happens is you don't have a sun, you don't have a moon, you actually have an earth. And the earth is exactly in the opposite zodiacal position of where your sun would be. So let's say your sun is, is a 10 of Taurus, then your, your earth is 10 of Scorpio. And there wouldn't be a sun in your heliocentric chart because that's the center of that chart. And because the moon is so close to the earth, 93 million miles away from the sun, you wouldn't have a moon also. And most of those charts are archetypal, starts with say zero of Aries and then go around in equal 30 degree spaces. And then the planets are put in there. Again, you'd have the same planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars. Uh, you'd also have the earth, of course, and you wouldn't have the moon, you wouldn't have the sun. 
and then you could put in uh, the asteroids as well. There are heliocentric positions there, and Chiron, Jupiter, Saturn, Pluto, uh, the nodes. And then in heliocentric astrology, you can work with perihelions and aphelions, how close planets are. I mean, this is not in the actual chart, but in research. When does a particular planet get closest to the sun? For instance, it was in 1989 that Pluto, in its 247-year cycle, made its perihelion to the sun. And that was a very uh, significant year. That's when the Berlin Wall fell. That began the, the uh, dissolution of communism. And uh, so and there were many other things that happened in 1989. And that was in the middle of a time period where Pluto was inside Neptune's orbit. And I'll, I'll re I'll re I will read my articles from Welcome to Planet Earth. I wrote a series of articles, but at least I'll, I'll read at least one called The Forgotten Cycle. Every Every 247 years, which is Pluto's orbit, for 20 years, it moves closer to the sun than Neptune. So they switch positions. And extraordinary things have happened in history during that 20-year time period. I can tell you that, that George Washington, John Adams, and right at the end, uh, J uh, Thomas Jefferson were all born in a cycle when uh, Pluto was inside Neptune's orbit. So Neptune became the outer planet of our solar system, at least traditionally thinking, in, and Pluto moved inward. We just had that between 1979 and 1999, which is very, very significant, which is when I was focused on that. And I actually talked to some astronomers uh, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for Welcome to Planet Earth to find out when was it exact and when was it ending and got some dates from that particular person. Basically, it started in January of 1979 and ended in January of 1999. And that is when the Islamic Revolution happened, okay? Um, that whole situation that developed um, in, with the Ayatollah Khomeini and revolutionary Iran. And so, um, so much of the turmoil in the Middle East and the resurrection of Christianity versus Islam stems out of the time period of Pluto moving inside Neptune, Neptune's orbit. So when I read you that main story, it will make sense. It has a lot to do with fundamentalism and this extreme religious kind of shifting and power and will and government, which connects up mostly to Pluto, and Neptune, which is more related to spiritual things and religious and idealism uh, and other factors, switching places. And by the way, the traditional birth of Jesus around 7 BC, or what is often considered 6 BC, but it was really 7 BC, uh, if we can recognize that time period, that was also one of the times when Pluto was inside Neptune's orbit. And so it's pretty fascinating to take a look at that. So another time I'm going to have to share more about um, the power of helioastrology that I associate a lot with Michael Irwin's work, and it's pretty amazing, and you might catch him on Facebook. That brings up the Andromeda Galaxy and Proxima Centaurus and the Alpha Centauri star system. Okay, because I went back to one of Michael's original books. It's sitting to my left, Astros astrological directions it's one of the books he wrote a long time ago it's filled with amazing astronomy and astrology about the galaxy and all these different stars and star clusters and galaxies and their positions in longitude and latitude and in the zodiac but uh, what happened was i realized kamala harris you know and again to me she's going to be the key person she's a little bit um overshadowed shall i say but as I brought up about the winter solstice with the asteroids being so strong in Washington, D.C. for the winter solstice, let's remember the inauguration. Okay, the next, let's put it this way, the next full moon, 
which is December 29, which is on the Mercury position for Donald Trump. Uh, the sun is opposite. The moon will be right on his Mercury, December 29th. We've had a series of eclipses and new moons that are affecting Donald Trump and his birth and the total lunar eclipse when he was born and the new moon before he was born, which was a partial eclipse on the United States Uranus. We've had a lot of these different things. And particularly my worry with the hacking has a lot to do. I mean, it's not just our power plants or electric plants, uh, commerce, um, homeland security. It has a lot to do with nuclear facilities and things that we don't want Russians or other people. And again, we don't, we have no idea at this point. And unfortunately, if you think that suddenly the public is just going to hear, oh, here's exactly what the Russians got or not, they're not going to tell us. I mean, or whatever we're told, and this is not from a right or a left or an extreme left or a right or progressive or, or anything. We're just, I mean, it's take, what we're finding out now is this occurred possibly as long ago as March, and it's been a con continuity of many years. We also know the President of the United States, any time that he's with Putin or anything, always says, hey, Putin said it wasn't him and I believe him, and we've had this whole thing going on, whether it was the Helsinki summit or everything else. And again, in their charts, and rightly so, I mean, if they were just friends, they have some good good alignments with each other, okay? I mean, Putin has a moon in Gemini, and uh, Trump has a sun in Gemini, okay? Um, Putin and, and Barack Obama also had the same moon, for the most part, but that didn't stop them from not getting along as well. But the big thing for, for Trump and Putin is that their Marses are exactly trying. Um, so... If they were just friend, if they were just people who got to know each other, not everybody's got Mars trying Mars, and they both have them fire signs. And and for people who are leaders of the world with nuclear weapons and talking all about ego and power and you know our guns are bigger than yours or our nuclear weapons are stronger than yours, it is an interesting thing that um, that Donald Trump, with all of his negativity with our country, because his son is on our Mars, our natal Mars from 1776, and his Mars is also rising. And that's part of the problem. And it's not simply, oh, he's egotistical or he's self-centered or he keeps focusing on his own needs. I mean, it goes back to the dangerous case of Donald Trump. I mean, narcissistic um, sociopathy or sociopathic narcissism is not just, oh, oh, he's got some narcissism or he doesn't have much of a conscience. This is actually an illness. It's part of something and it's not called that. And because we don't talk about it, and we just say, oh, he tweets, he was a businessman, he wasn't a politician. He's been kind of allowed to get away with all these things until now. We see how dangerous it all is. Well, at any rate, it has the Andromeda Galaxy. In Michael Erlewine's work, and I always knew this, the Andromeda Galaxy, which is, this is the, one of the more amazing things. Our, we're part of the Milky Way of billions of stars. We're 26,000 light years from the center of our galaxy, which appears to be, Roger would say, a giant white hole, but we know that it's some kind of black hole, but there's all kinds of amazing things going on at the center of our galaxy. And there are lots of stars there as well, and we can't really see it through regular telescopes because there's interstellar dust, but we can see the center of the galaxy through infrared or ultraviolet or X-ray type of telescopes, which is a fascinating thing by itself. Well, at any rate, our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy, we're, we're, we're racing toward this galaxy at an incredible speed that we don't even feel. And that Andromeda galaxy is a 27 plus. I mean, the galaxy is billions of stars because it's so far away, it looks like a kind of pinpoint of light. 
can be seen, I believe, through binoculars and certainly by telescope, and it's at 27 plus of Aries. Why is that important? The, the Andromeda galaxy, and it's connected to the myth of Andromeda and of a goddess in mythology. So there's this galaxy there, and it's exactly the moon in Kamala Harris's chart. I don't mean two degrees away, a degree away, five degrees away. It's exactly her moon. So her moon, and she's born right at a full moon. She's got the Andromeda galaxy, Milky Way, our galaxy, billions of stars, and the Andromeda galaxy. We're going to merge. They know this in, in, in billions of years. So it's way off in the future. And it's possible that our solar system will either survive this because there's a lot of space within galaxies. So even though we're going to sort of combine together, it's the ultimate marriage. It's like we're, I guess, considered the masculine galaxy, the Milky Way. They're the feminine, maybe. That, that's kind of a silly concept, but it's kind of a divine marriage, a cosmic marriage. So if you want to think of marriage or partnership or just any relationship, kind of this advanced Venus-Juno kind of concept, it's our galaxy merging with Andromeda. And what are the odds that our first female executive, a vice president, born exactly to full moon, a full moon that's more exact than the full moon that Donald Trump is born under, but while he's born on a total lunar eclipse, and I feel that's part of his danger, that he doesn't see or understand his lunar world, which is a lot of subconscious and feelings and moods and sensitivities, connection to the mother, connection to home. And I'm not saying every single person born on his day or at a total lunar eclipse is going to have the same problem, but he certainly does have that. And because he became president of the United States and his background and his family and going to military academy also is a big deal for many years. Um, when he was in his, his teens and he was away from home and we don't know exactly why. He's tried to cover his tracks with all of these schools. He always say, oh, I was a perfect student. We know that's not true. He's had different people, including uh, uh, the guy who, <laughs> I'm forgetting his last name, but the fellow who he worked with, Michael Cohen, sorry, Michael Cohen, who's a sun sign Virgo who already went to prison, who was his enforcer, so to speak, uh, uh, as in, in the uh, Godfather movies, um, who went to prison. And we still have Donald Trump as individual A or individual one, which ha which connects back to uh, uh, paying $130,000 um, as well to uh, the Playboy uh, actress to hush that all up with the National Enquirer and so on. And Michael Cohen had done all this dirty work. So we have all of those issues. At any rate, what I wanted to bring up is that um, Donald Trump is born at a full moon and a total lunar eclipse. And I feel that part of the danger there is he doesn't have access. And it disturbs me because I am born with a Sagittarius moon and, and he has one. I don't have the sun in Gemini, but he's born at a, a, a full moon and total lunar eclipse. And his chart is so connected, as I've shared, to positions in the U.S. chart. He's got Jupiter stationary, Chiron stationary, Neptune stationary. And his planets are so connected to the to the Declaration of Independence. So for him to be president and to have these dangerous kind of psychological medical problems that are going, they're not undiagnosed because they've been diagnosed by these 27 psychiatrists and doctors. It's just that a lot of people are not paying attention to that. At any rate, Kamala Harris is connected to the Andromeda galaxy, whatever that means. It's an extra quasi-cosmic force that could be guiding her destiny. And it's so powerful to have a galaxy with your moon. And we'll talk about other things with Kamala Harris another point. Joe Biden, meanwhile, I hadn't realized this, the, the, star, the star that's closest to our, 
our own sun is Proxima Centaurus. It's about four plus light years away. It's part of three stars in the Alpha Centauri star solar system. So there's actually three stars. They don't know exactly everything about Proxima Centaurus. It might be a dwarf star. It has a long orbit around the other two stars. We used to hear, hear the term Alpha Centauri, and that was considered the closest star. But this one dwarf star called Proxima Centaurus, but the whole system is at 28 Scorpio. And that's exactly the Sun Venus. Remember last time I shared that he's a Venusian because when he's born from a heliocentric standpoint and even from a geocentric standpoint, Joe Biden comes in as a Venusian. He's the counterweight to, to uh, Donald Trump, who's so martial in different ways. Now, it's not that uh, Joe Biden doesn't have a strong Mars. He does have Mars in Scorpio. When the election was happening, the sun was exactly making its annual crossing of his Mars. And Mars in Scorpio, like Mars in Aries, is in a sign of its own rulership. People forget that Mars traditionally rules Aries, a fire sign, and Scorpio, a water sign. And even though Pluto is affiliated with Scorpio, it makes a lot of sense in terms of its psychological meanings and emotional meanings for Scorpio, it doesn't rule Scorpio on a day-to-day -day basis because Pluto moves too slowly. As I shared in the last time, if you were born with the sun in Scorpio, if you have Scorpio rising in particular, or you know anyone with Scorpio rising, they will have Mars as a ruler because Mars has a two-year cycle. And in two years, Mars will make every conjunction, opposition, square, sextile, semi-sextile, um, whatever the, ac the alignment is, and when it, where it's going but from house to house, that's your ruler, Mars. It, it's great to think, oh, Pluto rules my chart on the Scorpio sun or, or of Scorpio rising. No, it doesn't. Not on a practical day-to-day -day level. So if you want to work with astrology and understand things, don't ignore Mars. That's part of the reason I did a podcast about Mars retrograde. And I did the research to find out during election times. We just had an election with Mars retrograde. And you could go back to that podcast. When were the other elections that we had it? I also did shared about Mars retrograde happening at inaugurations, which happened when JFK was inaugurated. It happened when Bill Clinton was inaugurated. It happens in 32-year cycles. It has to do with the Venus-Mars 32-year cycle, and I shared about that in a podcast. So 1961, JFK um, be becomes inaugurated, but Mars is retrograde. Then 32 years later in 1993, we get Bill Clinton. And the, there's this amazing scene of Bill Clinton as a young man going to Washington, D.C. It's in a black and white kind of video shaking hands with JFK. And th so 32 years after JFK's inauguration with Mars retrograde again, Bill Clinton is inaugurated. And just like JFK had the affairs, in his case, they didn't come out until later. Um, but we then learned about all those different things that happened with different women, even though Jack, he was married with Jackie Kennedy. So different things that were happening with liaisons with women in the White House, the thing about Marilyn Monroe, other women, and so on. And then what happens with Bill Clinton? A curse there, maybe because Mars retrograde, and Mars has a lot to do with sexuality and passion and uh, the male ego. And then he winds up having the affair with Monica Lewinsky, and then he gets impeached. So what's 32 years after 1993? The next time Mars is retrograde and inauguration will be January 20th of 2025. If that winds up being Kamala Harris running, if Joe Biden being too old, if he opts out, Kamala Harris does reasonably well. During the next four years, she will also hit her Saturn return. She will, be in a, she will have Saturn at the top of her chart. 
Her Saturn is conjunct the United States moon in Pallas Athena. She is a Saturn late Aquarius. And so we do know in her chart, as opposed to Joe Biden, in Joe Biden's chart, Jupiter and Saturn are moving down below. You see a Sagittarius rising and Jupiter and Saturn are moving in Aquarius, which is activating two asteroids in his chart, which is really good, uh, including Pallas Athena and Aquarius. And Joe Biden has a progressed sun in Aquarius and a progressed moon in Pisces. And he has Jupiter and Saturn in, moving in the depths of his chart. But he won the presidency for other reasons. As I've shared, Chiron conjunct the North Node in Leo, which is on uh, Donald Trump's rising. Joe Biden having Jupiter in Cancer on the United States Mercury, which outflanked Donald Trump having a Venus-Saturn conjunction at the same point in Cancer. So in different ways, and it was interesting because a year or so ago, it was it was it was shared that um, J Donald Trump's advisors and Donald Trump himself was kind of I don't know if the word scared. He was concerned if Joe Biden was going to be run against him because he felt that he would be much harder to defeat than Hillary Clinton. That's part of the whole thing with the Ukraine, with Burisma, um, with Hunter Biden and why even now. And this is what's so shocking now that um, he wants to have a special counsel. That's why he replaced. This was another point here. Um, and I just mentioned this briefly, Rachel Maddow, the day after I did the last podcast where I mentioned Jeffrey Rosen is going to become on December 23rd, he will take over the Justice Department. And Jeffrey Rosen is born April 2nd, 1958. I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but literally right after I gave out a warning that Jeffrey Rosen might be setting up a special counsel while Joe Biden is president, that you could create a special counsel in a backdoor kind of a way, which is part of the possibility of why uh, Barr has resigned, because it allows Jeffrey Rosen, who was Barr's handpicked uh, assistant and came in a year and a half ago, or whatever, and he's the assistant. He was the assistant attorney general, um, and now he'll be in charge starting December 23rd, which is a very difficult day in the sky because Mars is squaring Pluto, the moon is with Mars, is a long void moon, and that's when this person's going to take over. Again, April 2nd, 1958 is this guy's birthday. And I, at some point, I've got all the notes about his chart. I don't like a lot of them. It seems very dangerous in terms of his connection to the U.S. chart. And literally the next night, I wrote a note here, Rachel Maddow, the day after this was reported that Jeffrey Rosen would take charge uh, from... Um, replacing William Barr. I wrote, William Barr, uh, Rachel Maddow lowers the boom on Jeffrey Rosen. It was an amazing, uh, hit. she has her daily show Monday through Friday. And I wrote here, this was just hours after I talked about Jeffrey Rosen. I was shocked that when Jeffrey Rosen was announced that one day I didn't hear warnings, particularly from the liberal side of things, that this guy could be dangerous, that he might want to orchestrate through uh, in the backdoor way that the whole reason that he would be put in there is that um, he would authorize a special counsel of some kind within the Justice Department that could not be eliminated by uh, President-elect Biden. So he would wind up taking over as president-elect. Uh, and let's remember on the inauguration day, we've got Mars conjunct Uranus. As I shared before, there's a void moon that can't can't be taken away for almost two hours from noon to almost two o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time, the moon is void in the last degree of Aries. Even though Kamala Harris will have her moon return that morning and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Remember, I did two podcasts on the Biden-Harris ticket, so you can check that out. 
and both of their charts have been put out uh, many times now in these podcasts. But um, Kamala Harris that morning before she takes the oath will have a lunar return. But Joe Biden, who has a moon in early Taurus, will not have his lunar return until just after the void. So to have a void moon, to have a first quarter moon square, which is very similar, um, the exact same uh, first quarter moon happened when Lincoln had his second inauguration. And then the Civil War ended five weeks later, and then he was assassinated. And again, I'm not saying that there is a danger of that kind of thing because we've had void moons uh, before where the president, you know, survives. And Obama, his first administration, there was a void moon, a very a difficult void moon at the end of Scorpio. He's still living. He's do, doing well, although his policies have been overturned by, by Donald Trump. And so that's one of the ways in which a void moon can affect a government that in this case, we know that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to be starting with a lot of detriments. They're not getting the support they need in the, in the transition that was already delayed right now. Apparently, they're not getting uh, reports from the Pentagon. That's another thing. Um, we've seen that Donald Trump has installed different people. He, t he took out uh, Mike, uh, M Mark Esper from the Defense Department lead, and he's put in these surrogates in order to create obfuscation and prevent a clear amount of information to go to uh, to Joe Biden and his team that's going to come in. The other thing is the concern, and this is this is often what happens when we find out the Russians have been spying or the Chinese have been spying or the Syrians or somebody, and we go to, and we see they're burning files from their embassy. Uh, they're destroying files, and so one of the things that could be happening here is they're going through different files. That the, who knows? I mean, I, I can't say for sure, but. Um, these different people who don't have expertise are being put in different departments, whether it's justice, whether defense and other areas, there's still been a concern, it hasn't happened yet, that he might uh, fire uh, Christopher uh, Ray over at the FBI, and he's been warned not to do that, just like apparently he's wanted to attack Iran, he's wanted to do different things, and some of his advisors, as well as Secretary of State Pompeo, as well as Mitch McConnell, other people are trying to dissuade the president from acting really weird. At any rate, there's the Jeffrey Rosen issue. The Proxima Centaurus Alpha Centauri thing of the, the closest star system to the sun, that that would just be exactly uh, President uh, Joe Biden's uh, Venus-Sun conjunction, and he had uh, Juno and Venus on December 14th when the electors met was exactly at that point, and he was having a Venus return. Again, this is a very extraordinary thing. At some point, we'll probably go over the inauguration chart again. There are a lot of powerful energies in the inauguration chart because the Sun, Saturn, Jupiter, Pallas, and Mercury, they're all overhead. Um, Mars and Uranus will actually make their conjunction, but they're in the 12th house, and the Moon, once it goes into Taurus after being void in Aries, will make a conjunction to Mars and Uranus in the 24 hours after the inauguration. The good news is... Um, in late December, before Mercury is going to go retrograde on January 30th for three weeks. When it does that, it will be right on the United States moon, palace, and quayor, which is another big thing. So watch for that January 30th, that Mercury retrograde time period. Not that Mercury retrograde is bad, as I've shared in my podcast 25. Mercury retrograde has extraordinarily positive good energies, and retrograde planets themselves can be incredibly powerful. We listen to that um, podcast. It's one of the more popular ones. I also give a lot of famous people, past and present, who all have Mercury retrograde. And it, and it 
belies the whole idea that Mercury retrograde has to be negative. It doesn't have to be at all. And the United States came in, uh, Declaration of Independence, Mercury retrograde. The New York Times, 1851 in September, Mercury retrograde. The so-called failing New York Times has been around for 169 years and it's not failing. And it has Mercury retrograde. That doesn't mean it isn't controversial, just like the United States and its policies and its ideas. And shifting from being a melting pot and being isolationist very often with four of our celestial bodies in the sign cancer to be being the world's policeman or doing things because there's a KGB and there's different spies and different kind of uh, negative energy in the world, we wind up creating a central intelligence agency. And we've undermined many governments around the planet and tried to install, in many cases, generals and military to offset communism because we don't want, and this is what happened in Iran. Uh, in 1953, where they elected Mossadegh uh, freely and fairly, and then we overturned their election and we installed the Shah of Iran, who, who then had his own uh, extreme grip, um, his secret police. And then that's what led to um, the whole uh, horrible thing during the Carter administration, because uh, he was dying and, and Jimmy Carter brought him to New York, the Shah, to go to one of our hospitals to get the attention he needed. And that led in the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was in exile in France, and that started the Islamic Revolution um, in 1979, which again was part of, right, happened after Pluto went inside Neptune's orbit for a 20-year cycle, and we had the shifting principles between Pluto and Neptune, between will, purpose, and power, and government, and religion and spirituality with Neptune. And so sort of right on cue with this cosmic cycle, every 247 years where one outer planet shifts and changes and moves closer. And this is a heliocentric phenomenon, not a geocentric phenomenon. But again, it influences us on Earth because we're part of the solar system. And we shared all about this and welcome planet Earth. It's not as if this is new material. But at any rate, the inauguration chart, there are many other kinds of things. Pluto is overhead in that chart. Um, Juno in Sagittarius in the inauguration chart is right on the sun of the first nuclear chain reaction of December 2nd, 1942, that Joe Biden is born so close to. One of the things is that Joe Biden is born, as I shared the last time, only 12 days before Enrique Fermi and his team in Chicago conducted the first controlled nuclear chain reaction. And that, in my series on nuclear access, is where we have the beginning of the nuclear age with a particular chart. And it's amazing that Juno, which has a lot to do with empowerment or disempowerment, in relationship and peace and harmony in Joe Biden's chart is right on the sun of the first nuclear chain reaction. And I do believe because the outer planets in his chart are close to the outer planets of that nuclear chain reaction, that part of the reason with all the looseness uh, between uh, Trump and Putin and with uh, Xi and, and Putin forming stronger alliances and with rogue nuclear weapons, we've just ended, which hopefully will be restored the open skies treaty uh, with the Russians that we've had for decades, where they're able to fly planes over our country, we can fly planes over their countries in certain ways that are controlled. And Trump just um, decided to opt out of that. And Rachel Maddow did a whole thing about that, and possibly to get rid of the actual planes or put them in mothballs. Again, Joe Biden, whether you like him or not, is going to restore through executive orders a whole bunch of things that uh, Trump has taken us out of. Um, the, the Pacific Trade Alliance, uh, NATO will get stronger again. There'll be better relationships with our allies. 
And um, so there's going to be a lot of amazing shifts that are going to be very important that are going to come up. Um, I will probably put out the U.S. chart again one more time with this podcast just so it's out there. And let's see. Uh, oh, before we get into the Dalai Lama and then the last part of the story, Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. I'm so glad I got to this point and I have consolidated this, believe it or not. Um, and we're not too bad. We're at. Well, let's see where we're at. We're less than three hours, but um, it looks like we're going to have a three-hour one as well here this time. But we're doing pretty well. So Yogi Berra in his chart, you can listen last time, the malapropianisms, um, I, th quotes like, I really didn't say everything I said. It's deja vu all over again. Um, but the main one is it, it ain't over till it's over. And when I was thinking of the last podcast, I thought of Yogi Berra, my love for him and Mickey Mantle, the New York Yankees growing up and reading the World Almanac, and that's how I started in astrology, dealing with numbers. The last time I also shared with you, and when I read about how the Great Bear began, last time I shared the book, uh, The Ancient Wisdom by Jeffrey Ash, talking about syllogisms, um, these three statements that would often, in Greek mythology time, uh, Greek, uh, ancient Greece, these ideas, uh, Socrates is a man, um, all men are mortal, Socrates is mortal, where you'd have these ideas of a tripart kind of idea. This three energy versus a four energy, bringing in the concepts of Jung, relating four to the subconscious or unconscious, and three to more of the conscious mind. And I brought in the idea that um, numbers came in in baseball from uh, Babe Ruth in the 1920s, being the third batter up in the Yankee order, and Lou Gehrig was the fourth, and therefore they, when the Yankees decided to put numbers on uniforms, they gave uh, Ruth three and Gehrig four, not because Ruth said, I want to be three, and said, I want number three, and Gehrig says, well, then I'll be four. It's that they were given those numbers because of their order in the lineup, and that's an important thing. A lot of people don't think about, well, why would that be? Because now players in all sports men and women, it's like, oh, I want to be 22. I'm, I'm born in the 22nd. Um, or whatever it may be, um, people want to be numbers. Like um, Barry, Barry Bonds wanted to be 24 because his idol was Willie Mays. But Willie Mays, um, Barry Bonds, when he was playing for Pittsburgh, was 24. But when he came over to the San Francisco Giants, 24 had been retired because it was Willie Mays' number. So you can't unretire that number. So Barry Bonds became 25 when he was a San Francisco Giant. So choosing numbers and not when when I was growing up, for instance, you never had. Well, you did have, you know, like Whitey Ford was number 16, but there was nobody with less than that number as a pitcher that I remember. So there was somebody who would have 17 or 18. I know there was a pitcher, Bob Turley, who was number 19 and so on. I believe. Um, <laughs> The, the guy who uh, gave up the home run to Bill Mazeroski, I'm, I'm not remembering his name for one sec. Oh, Ralph Terry. He was 23. And then he was also the, the pitcher who won the World Series for the Yankees two years later in San Francisco, won nothing in the bottom of the ninth. And I couldn't understand why Ralph Houck, the manager, kept him in there because I remembered him giving up a home run to Bill Mazeroski in 1960. And I couldn't believe he was going to be pitching to Willie McCovey with two with Willie Mays on third base and a, either Philippe Lou or, or his brother on second base. And the Yankees barely won that game. It was a line drive. It wasn't a strikeout. And Ralph Terry could have done for two times in two years, given up a winning run 
to the opposing pitcher, but he was number 23. Now, do I know if, if Ralph Terry was born the 23rd and he wanted to be 23? I don't know if Whitey Ford was born the 16th, but he was number 16. So different people have chosen numbers, but I only bring this up because Yogi Berra was number eight. Eight is a power number. Uh, Mickey Mantle was number seven. I gave the story that uh, with numbers in the New York Yankees, that when Joe DiMaggio came up, he was given number five because he was seen as the next superstar and Gehrig was still playing. Ruth had retired. So they gave, I don't know if there was, there was probably a previous number five and whoever that was, Joe DiMaggio comes up coming out of uh, San Francisco Seals and the minor leagues and tearing up that league. And then he, he, he's drafted, he comes into the Yankees and he's given five. And then he becomes this amazing player for the Yankees, eventually also serves in World War II, eventually marries Marilyn Monroe. It's part of actually his chart, as well as Marilyn Monroe's chart and JFK's chart, they're all in my classes because I use JFK and Marilyn Monroe, not because they necessarily definitely had a relationship, but because their charts are known and their charts are used in my beginner series in particular of the School of Planetary Studies. But at any rate, Joe DiMaggio marries Marilyn Monroe. That becomes an incredibly famous marriage. Eventually they get divorced, but he's number five. And then when Mickey Mantle comes up, they, as I said last time, they give him number six. Then he gets injured in a play where he his his cleats get caught. He gets into terrible pain. He thinks he, he like his father, will have osteomyelitis and die before he's 40. Meanwhile, Joe DiMaggio was playing center field then. Then he retires. Mickey Mantle had been given number six. After he comes out of his pain and injury, he, he says, I'm not, I don't want six. I want seven because he didn't want the pressure of numbers. I only bring up numbers of the basis of astrology. Of course, we know that the basis of numerology, Pythagorean numerology and uh, modern numerology, but they are the basis of numerology and they are very powerful. So I grew up, and this is part of the reason I, I believe very strongly I got into astrology because Mickey Mantle wore seven and seven is a sacred number. Seven days of the week, seven notes of the musical scale, seven colors of the rainbow, the seven stars of the great bear, which I'll share more about. Uh, this, the seven days of creation, seven is considered a sacred number in all kinds of numerology and all kinds of religion. And so growing up in New York, I mean, then aside from Mickey Mantle in baseball, there in I mean, there are sevens in other teams that probably did very well, but there's no one as famous as he became for various reasons. So if somebody's going to say who wore number seven, you know, who's the most famous person a male person in professional sports in the United States wore number seven, it's going to be that guy, Mickey Mantle. So I was fortunate that he became my male hero sports figure. But Yogi Berra was number eight. And Yogi Berra was this transitional figure linking the Joe DiMaggio age, which is the age of five, over to seven when Mickey Mantle comes in. And as I showed the last time, Yogi Berra started set on September 22nd, 1946, was his first his major league debut. And you can't make this up. He dies on September 22nd, the same day. Um, I don't have my notes in front of me. It was, I guess it was, it was only a couple of years ago. But he dies on the same day, exactly September 22nd, which is pretty much the beginning of, of fall. Um, the same day that he started Major League Baseball, then he dies on that day. Of course, he was, like Mickey Mantle, won the most valuable player three times. Yogi Berra batted 285. He had the most home runs as a catcher until Johnny Bench came along, had an extraordinary number of runs batted in, 
has won more World Series than any other player, I believe, at all, American or National League, 10 World Series that he won. He was in other ones and coached and managed and so on. What I forgot was I didn't, I put it in the chart, but I didn't say anything about it. So what I wanted to simply say is his chart is actually from a birth certificate time. So, or 10, 2 a.m. in the morning, he's born in St. Louis. And he's born in the same block as Joe Garagiola, and he was a famous uh, broadcaster who was also a catcher, but never as famous as Yogi Berra. Well, the amazing thing in this chart, so look in the last, uh, last month, uh, the last podcast, and if you look in the second house, you'll see something very amazing because of other things I've been saying in many podcasts. Yogi Berra, with all these aphorisms, they ain't over till it's over. It gets early, late out there. Uh, it's deja vu all over again. And so many other things. And I mentioned before, one of the first book of yogiisms that came out, came out from a company called Workman Publishing. And I did 17 years of Sunshine calendar projects for that company. And I also did one year a numerology calendar for them. And then the whole thing ended. But while I was actually doing it, then the Yogi Berra book came out. So I became connected in that way. And this firm, Workman Publishing, which still exists, is in New York City. Again, when we're, New York is where Yogi Berra played and all of that. So at any rate, look in the second house of, in the last uh, podcast in the folder for Yogi Berra. Chiron, 25 Aries 46, or the 26th degree of Aries. Mercury, exactly at that spot only eight minutes of arc away and eight minutes of arc is one seventh of of one degree it's a minute fraction so when he came into the world he has mercury conjunct chiron now i've just been talking about mercury and chiron mercury is the messenger of the gods i mentioned that uh, mercury for ralph Waldo emerson winds up being the same mercury in the chart you'll see for the dalai lama who is born on July 6th of 1935, and he is an exact time. I'm not sure how, somebody figured this out, maybe from rectification, 4.38 in the morning, and it's in, well, I can't even pronounce it now. Well, it was in Tibet, but Tibet is now taken over by China. So at any rate, you'll see the town there. And and he, if you look in uh, the Dalai Lama's chart, You'll see Mercury in the 12th house at 25 plus a Gemini, the same exact degree of Ralph Waldo Emerson, which is 25 a Gemini. In the meantime, uh, Mercury and Chiron in a conjunction, how many people are born when Mercury is with anything else? If Mercury is going to be with something, the most likely planet Mercury is going to be with statistically would be the sun or the moon. Well, every let me put it this way. Every month, the moon and Mercury together. So probably statistically, a moon-mercury conjunction is the foremost if you're going to have it. But that would mean you'd, with. let's put it this way. The moon takes two and a half days to go through a sign. So every two hours, the moon goes through one degree of the zodiac. To have the moon with mercury exactly at that degree would be amazing. It only happens for an hour or so every month. Mercury to be otherwise would be with the sun, and that happens every four months, Okay. This person, uh, Yogi Berra, with all of his famous sayings, and remember, his sayings, his words, his communications, that's Mercury. And what are they known for? Being odd, being weird, being unusual, being like, I don't know what you would call it, because they are rare. Nobody else did what he did, said what he said, and had the weird influence to the point where he becomes 
nationally recognized, not only because he's this famous catcher in New York City and all the things I'm talking about, linking two generations of Yankee superstars and these simultaneities where he starts his career on the 22nd, which is a master number, by the way, of September. And then he dies on the same day, you know, um, so many years later. When he was ninety, he is when he passed. So he would it would have been uh, two thousand fifteen, on September twenty second. He would have been ninety in a few months. So why does he die on September twenty second? Also, he's born on May twelfth, and his moon is at twelve plus a Capricorn, and he's got twelve plus of Pisces rising, and he's got Pluto at twelve of Cancer trine Saturn at eleven of Scorpio making a grand trine Saturn Pluto or trine, trine his ascendant at twelve of Pisces. His moon is 12 plus a Capricorn. When he comes into the world, his moon is an exact sextile, an alliance that's supportive to his ascendant. He's got the moon approaching Jupiter. Again, we know Jupiter, king of the gods, power positive thinking. Here's a guy who had all these witticisms. But the big thing is he's got Mercury exactly the same degree with Chiron. And guess what? Pallas Athena is only two degrees away. Who wouldn't want a triple conjunction of Chiron, Mercury, and Pallas Athena all within three degrees? And Pallas Athena represents genius, it represents knowledge, it represents wisdom. The The manager on a field in baseball is the catcher. The catcher is getting signals from the manager. I wish I could have thousands of Baseball Tarot. Uh, in fact, I tried to inquire. Baseball Tarot was actually published by Worker Publishing. It was the only time they ever did a Tarot um, set of cards and books. It's 78 cards. I do have a few of them left. Maybe you can, again, if you go to Amazon.com, there, there was a, a group that tried to imitate us and stole our ideas, and they created something called the, the, the Dow of Baseball. Or no, it was called uh, the Tarot of Baseball. Sorry, the Tarot of Baseball. My deck is called Baseball Tarot with Laura Phillips. Beautifully done, 78 cards, incredible story. Baseball fits in with metaphysics extraordinary way. At uh, some point, I'll put the image on there. And it has number seven on the cover. It's not Mickey Mantle, but we didn't use Mantle and Barra and Ruth and Garrick. I wanted to do that in the beginning, but then we made it so that it was feminine and masculine. There are children in there and teenagers, and it's really beautifully designed. And we had a blast doing it, and it took 10 years in order to get the whole thing to happen. Unfortunately, Workman Publishing stored everything. They didn't talk about marketing. I wanted to market it and go to, I was going to travel at my own expense. This is a couple of decades ago and going to ballparks. I wanted these to be sold when you went to, you know, the concession stand at uh, AT&T Park in San Francisco or Dodger Stadium or Yankee Stadium. I wanted, I was going to go or up to Seattle because it's not far from here and pitch this and be on the radio and market it and mark and work and say, no, 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 we'll do it. We'll do everything. And this is just to give you an example of why I am now doing more of my own marketing on these podcasts. Because you look, marketing and advertising, if you have somebody and you trust them and they can do it, great. But if you don't, often people will say, oh, like Workman said, we'll do it. We'll take care of everything. Well, guess what? Baseball Tarot comes out and you know where they put it in in, uh, bookstores and all the famous things? They put it in the baseball section and not in the Tarot section. Now, where's the communication breakdown? That doesn't make any sense. If you're going into a bookstore and you're looking in the baseball section, you're not looking for a a deck of baseball tarot cards in a book. Now, maybe you'll buy it and say, this is really weird. Where you want it is in the tarot section. So 
base Voltero comes out and I and they say, yeah, it's out. You should go. Go to your store. You'll see it in there. And I go and the big bookstore in Eugene and I mentioned, and they say, yeah, it's in the store. You know, and I look in the Tarot section. I can't find it. I said, it's not in the Tarot section. Oh, yeah, it's in baseball. What? You don't, don't put it in baseball. This is a Tarot deck. It's it's an oracle. And so I was so disappointed. And then I contacted them and said, well, we can't control what they're doing. We tried to, and you know, let them know. And again, then they wound up storing all of baseball Tarot. It had some sales in the beginning, and they produced, I'm just saying this so you understand about ordering things, and why I'm now being my own pitchman, I don't want to do that, but having struggled with a lot of these things and advertisers and marketing and publicity, and then um, they stored thousands of copies in Wisconsin or somewhere in a storage facility, a baseball tarot, because they weren't selling. Why weren't they selling all that well? It's not that it is an amazing deck, it is. In fact, a lot of people that I talked to who have worked with the Tarot and the limited number of people who actually got it, they're saying, wow, this is so much fun. It's so intriguing. Baseball and metaphysics and the diamond and the number nine and all these numbers and everything. Plus, the major arcana are beautifully done uh, and how they connect so much to traditional Tarot, whether it's the fool. We have the rookie, double zero. Uh, instead of death, there's retirement, which is the end of a, what a player is. Instead of the lightning struck tower, we have the lightning struck scoreboard, and on and on. There's some extraordinary type of things. So baseball could be seen as so similar to Roe and its great archetypes. Anyway, long story short. So Yogi Berra, also sun sign Taurus, uh, sun trine Jupiter. This is the other thing. I mean, he, he becomes famous more for the yogiisms than for his incredible career. And he has a rising Uranus. So you look around the chart, Mercury conjunct Chiron, same degree, uh, deja vu, Chiron has a lot to do with shamans and mentors. Well, that's who Yogi Berra became. And again, he just had a wisdom because as the catcher, he's the on-field manager. You look at, watch games, you'll see very often the catcher looking over to the manager, you know, then giving the signals to the pitcher and on and on with coaches. So uh, catchers are extraordinarily gifted and need a lot of knowledge and wisdom. And there it is, Mercury conjunct Chiron and conjunct Pallas Athena. And then we see his son in the uh, toward the beginning of the third house, actually it's in the second, trining Jupiter. And again, one thing I've said, which came through the Magi Society, you can't have Jupiter direct in a trine with the sun. The only way, if you have sun trine Jupiter and it's almost exact, guess what? Jupiter has to be retrograde. It has to be retrograde. It has to do with the structure of the solar system. So I defy you, find somebody with the sun approaching, uh, in this case, within one degree of Jupiter, uh, a trine, which is a fabulous relationship for anybody to have in terms of opening mind and consciousness and knowledge, wisdom, providence, benevolence, and so much. Aside from everything else in the chart, Jupiter retrograde. So this, all this talk, retrograde bad, retrograde bad, Mercury retrograde bad. It's a superficiality. It isn't true. Yes, Mer Mercury retrograde or planets retrograde like Mars or any of the planets, they have a meaning. Be careful. Look at things carefully. That's important with any retrogrades. But it is a going in. It's a deepening thing. So the U.S. has Mercury retrograde. It deepens the American spirit or what we're striving to do in terms of being a more a democratic union or recognizing equal rights, even if it takes us forever to do. Same thing with the New York Times, all the news that fits the print. You know, every day 
the New York Times will have a correction area in the second page, it's usually on page two, of its errata from the day before. Nobody's perfect. Remember, Donald Trump, it's a perfect phone call. This is not a perfect podcast. I've never done one, and I never will, and I don't want to. The thing is, is that only people would say, anybody who'd ever say, it was a perfect phone call. It's ridiculous, a perfect anything. I mean, you can go through the Declaration of Independence. You can go through the Constitution. As I shared before, the Constitution, they had this whole battle where George Mason wanted to have the Bill of Rights in there. It wasn't strong enough. He was overruled by James Madison. That was in 1787, when the 17, September 17, 1787. Then the uh, Constitution has to be ratified. It happens after the ninth state, uh, New Hampshire, uh, votes to ratify out of the 13 colonies in June of 1788. Then the country gets started in March and April of 1789. But the, the Bill of Rights doesn't get put in there as the first 10 amendments to the Constitution until a couple of years later. There's a separate chart for that. And that's why I get upset about strict constitutionalists. Um, the thing is, is that the, the Constitution, James Madison realized, wait a minute, okay, I kind of didn't agree with James Mason, who wanted more of those Bill of Rights. And then there were going to be 13 of them, but only 10 of them were accepted. That's why we have the Bill of Rights and the first 10 amendments with all the different, well, you can go through the whole thing, but of course, in the beginning, the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, and so on, and all the other ones. Um, whether they're still debated, like the one about guns, and whether that referred to a militia or every individual that's still being deba debated as constitutional or not. But the point is, we didn't have a Bill of Rights, and then we didn't have amendments until later. It's not part of the original Constitution, which shows the need. Again, it gets back to the Ralph Waldo Emerson thing, uh, not having a little mind and being able to change and to uh, not be a conformist and be able to grow and evolve. At any rate, um, I'm not going to go through the Dalai Lama's chart because I do want to read the story about how the Great Bear began, but the chart is amazing. Um, the thing that I find fascinating with the Dalai Lama, one is I want to say in his secondary progress chart, because he is just turned 85, he has Venus stationing now. He's He had Venus retrograde for like 42 years of his life, Venus retrograde, and think of him being on exile, okay? In his case, he's become much more famous because he was exiled and has become international because of the plight of Tibet. You know, we've got Richard Gere in particular uh, in Hollywood as one of the main proponents of the Dalai Lama, and he's very close to him, um, of course, over the years. And I know uh, Richard Gere is born late August. He's got a son in Virgo, which is interesting. I just realized that Richard Gere's son in late Virgo is on the Moon-Neptune conjunction in Virgo in the Dalai Lama's chart, and I just realized this right now. And the Dalai Lama has Moon opposite Saturn and Neptune opposite Saturn. So eventually I like to look at Richard Gere's chart. I know he has an organization to help Tibet. I remember him mentioning something about the Dalai Lama in Tibet when he won an award at the Academy Awards, and I think maybe some people booed him or something because so many different people, you know, with Academy Awards, they don't want people making political speeches. But at any rate, um, there is this great magazine uh, with the Dalai Lama on a cover. Uh, I've come to him more late in my life, and I read every day um, from these meditations. Um, in the chart, um, and this is true, even if the birth, even the time that's used here, 4.38 in the morning, July 6, 1935, is not accurate. 
the sun for the Dalai Lama, remember he's born July 6th, is exactly with the United States sun. They're only a half a degree apart. And so the Dalai Lama's influence on Americans um, of all kinds and all of our religious groups and cultural groups, I really recommend if you can find this magazine, again, there's uh, it's called Lion's Roar. And I just saw, I only own one copy of this. I, I saw it at a grocery store. Oh, okay. Lion's Roar, L-I-O-N apostrophe S, Roar. And I guess they have a website. Well, it's in here somewhere. Oh, yeah. www.lionsroar, without the apostrophe, L-I-O-N-S-R-O-A-R.com. Visit our website. And not, again, I don't work for them, but for $24, you would have a two-year subscription. At least that was the going rate a couple of months ago. And I guess it comes out every two months. So you'd have 12 issues. It's a beautifully done slick, I mean, when I say slick, I mean glossy magazine. There's a lot of spiritual stuff in here with advertisements and, I mean, advertisements of well-known organizations. And of course, the plight of Tibet is a big thing that still exists. We know that the Chinese are enslaving the Uyghurs in the West. And I've shared this before. One of the unfortunate things about um, Putin and Xi is that they're both trying to um, destroy the, with, with uh, Putin, it's the uh, previous Soviet republics, many of which are Islamic. And the same problem is going on in China. I shouldn't say problem because the Uyghurs are Islamic. So of, they have religious views, whereas China is, at least in theory, communist, non-religious. And so, and also authoritarian. And with Putin and Russia, we've got, we had hoped with Gorbachev coming in and the new Russia, which is Christmas of 1991, by the way, Russia's having a Saturn return. They're having their first identity crisis. And this is happening very strongly in February, uh, but all of 2021, uh, Putin, Russia, Saturn return cycle. I will be sharing more about mundane astrology, the connections between Russia, China, Xi, Putin, Trump, uh, Biden, Harris, other war leaders, um, Iran, Israel, Syria, their national charts, the UK chart, chart for France, for Germany. Um, there's a chart for NATO and so many others. So at any rate, I recommend looking into uh, the Dalai Lama. His chart is amazing. There's so many other things. Again, as I said, he's having, in a secondary progress chart, Venus is stationing going direct. And currently his progressed son, in Libra is on his Venus Jupiter midpoint. And he, like Rudyard, who lived to be 90 years old and became very, I mean, Rudyard, my main teacher, became as a writer and as an influencer, became very strong after astrology personality came out, I think it was 1936. And Dane Rudyard was 41. So he was in the midlife crisis or power surge when Uranus goes opposite its own position and Neptune is uh, squaring its position and it's a very significant period of time when we need to sort of reconnect to our spiritual and soulful energies, which is, again, called the midlife uh, crisis. But I call it a midlife power surge if you tap into your spiritual heritage. So here we have um, the Dalai Lama has just passed his Uranus return. He's now 85. He's into a cycle beyond Uranus coming back. His natal Uranus is five of Taurus. And Uranus is currently going to station at six plus a Taurus in January. By the way, that's also significant. We're going to have a new moon on January 13th, seven days before the inauguration. And that new moon, on, the, on that day, we're going to be having uh, Mars and Saturn 
squaring each other. And then the next day, Uranus is going to make a station and the sun is going to conjunct Pluto. So talk about empowerment and fireworks and extremes and intensity. The new moon that precedes the inauguration is going to be um, an enormous powerhouse. Um, and it's not an easy time at all. I'll be sharing more in Astro Flash um, with some, some dates in there. And of course, in the next global hotspot, or I shouldn't say the next, but the global hotspot I do about the January 13th new moon is going to be extremely important because Uranus is going to be stopping right at that point and the Sun and Pluto are going to be coming close together. There are many other things in this chart, including that not only does the Dalai Lama's Sun conjoin the U.S. Sun, but his, his Pluto is 25 of Cancer, which is the same, which is the Jupiter for uh, Joe Biden. So they might have an extraordinary connection. And again, the Dalai Lama's Mercury at 25 Gemini is the same Mercury as Ralph Waldo Emerson. There are many other things in this chart. He's got an elevated, Dalai Lama's got an elevated Vesta at 20 of Pisces, which is where Neptune is crisscrossing at this time. And there's just many other things. He's got the same Jupiter as, guess who? Ronald Reagan. And his Jupiter is also the Mars for, for Joe Biden. I imagine they have cross paths. Joe Biden is very religious in his Catholic religion. Again, that has been a challenge uh, before in American politics. Al Smith, governor of New York, was the first person running as a, as a Catholic for president. He got walloped by Hoover, Herbert Hoover. And then JFK was Catholic, had to talk to Protestant ministers and got a standing ovation. Uh, at, and when he went to Houston and he gave a talk, and this was during the campaign against Richard Nixon, and there were a lot of ministers who were against him, because he was Catholic and these were Protestant ministers. He got a standing ovation. He was tested pretty strongly there, but that sort of broke this mold. But now we're going to have only the second president who's Catholic. And well, there's a lot of, there's still a lot of negativity. And, and that's another thing we don't talk about. You know, um, Kamala Harris is married to a Jewish person. So it's very interesting, a Jewish husband. And that only happened not so long ago. And so we've got the first vice president is very connected now to, to her Jewish husband and his uh, children from a previous marriage. And so she's very connected to Judaism. And um, he was, she was also very strongly connected to Bo Biden because they were both attorney generals of their states uh, Cal uh, in California for Kamala Harris and in Delaware for Bo Biden, who was attorney general and then died a number of years ago, I guess it was two, 2014 of, a, of brain cancer. It was part of the reason why Joe Biden did not run in 2016 was kind of talked uh, talked out of it by Barack Obama, who felt that with Bo Biden passing, uh, it would be too much. But now we've got Joe Biden as, as president-elect and his son was very close with Kamala Harris. They That's part of the reason Kamala Harris wound up in this position. Again, the Dalai Lama's chart, very fascinating. And maybe I'll share more about it another time. By the way, another thing with the Dalai Lama's chart, his natal Mars at 18 of Libra, which is opposite his Juno, that's the, the progress position for the United States. And in 2006, our secondary progress Mars stopped for the next 80 years by progression at 18 of Libra. And that's exactly the Dalai Lama's natal Mars, 18 of Libra. So the Dalai Lama speaks to us. His sun is conjunct our sun, his Pluto is on our Mercury. As I said, his Mercury is also in a strategic position regarding the new moon before birth for the United States. And it's the same Mercury, that, exactly the same Mercury uh, as Ralph Waldo Emerson. So some extraordinary things there. So I'm going to read this story. It'll be the end. And I guess uh, we've got, this is pretty extemporaneous. And I've been able 
to get to do this. So it's about the same length as last time, but at least uh, it's not much longer. So what we have here, I'm going to try and sip a little bit of water. It's called Great Bear Adventures. And hold on a second. It has to do with the, how I began uh, the Great Bear, which actually started at Findhorn, eventually became my business out here in Oregon when I arrived in 1984, but incorporated more in 1988. So it's on the page next to the other article. This is from 25 plus years ago from our Leo Virgo 1995 issue on the cover showing Great Bear uh, Adventures. So here's the story. Um, the following is a revised version of a feature which originally ran in the very first Welcome to Planet Earth newspaper in December 1982. By the way, that first newspaper version, Welcome to Planet Earth, was in Wisconsin. And um, it was actually in the town that Paul Ryan, who was on the vice presidential ticket um, with Mitt Romney, and who had been Speaker of the House before uh, Nancy Pelosi took it back over, and of course, Paul Ryan is now retired, and he represented the area where I pr had printed in Delavan in southern Wisconsin. I remember that remarkable experience. We went from a newsletter to a newspaper rolling off the presses, a regular newspaper size. And that was an amazing moment because I always had imagined not so much an astrolo pioneering astrology magazine, but a newspaper. Because I grew up with the New York Times, the Daily News, the New York Telegram and Sun. We were getting information those days, of course, Walter Cronkite, and he had a short 15 minutes or 30 minutes of news on black and white TV. And we had radio and we had newspapers. And that's how you learned everything. No computers, no 24-7, no internet, no cell phones, no nothing. So um, what I had dreamed of was creating an astrological newspaper. And that's what we did. And I remember that day. And it was uh, actually, I said December. I think the exact date was November 17th. Um, if I remember correctly, the same day the Theosophical Society came into being in 1875. I believe it's either November 16 or 17 when the newspaper came out, but it was the newspaper for the December issue. And I remember with a good friend of mine, um, Christopher Guilfoyle, who wound up doing the art for, for um, Inner Child Cards. And he and I took several thousand copies and went to Chicago. The only time I was actually in Chicago doing something in the city of Chicago. And we just went out and we went to all these natural food stores and cafes and any place where they had uh, uh, kind of like a weekly for that town or some kind of free literature. And we went in and we said, could we put some, this is a new newspaper. It has metaphysics and astrology and unusual things, uh, ecology and environment, because we did. And they said, sure, you know, put out some copies. We just kept doing it. Uh, throughout the day. So that's that was that. But at that, at that point, we also had sub subscribers and eventually several thousand people from all over the world having subscriptions and bookstores and so on. Okay, so uh, I'm going to have a picture of this on Great Bear Enterprises in the podcast number 69, little uh, area that you can click on. So you'll be able to see again, the uh, well, the page from the article, which shows the Great Bear with the seven stars as a picture. And then there's another thing of the actual seven stars, the literal seven stars um, and the degrees of the zodiac. And so that picture is kind of important uh, for you to see if, if possible. It may not be 100% clear, but at least you get a sense of 
what I was writing. So again, it was originally written, I wrote the story in 1982, the same year I was working on the nuclear axis, but that was toward the end. And it was, this is now the newspaper um, that came out in the newspaper version. And now 13 years later, almost 13 years later, 1995, I'm rerunning this in the magazine. How the Great Bear Began, um, bold subhead. Back in 1971, I began exploring esoteric philosophy according to Gurdjieff and Auspensky. That led to an interest with the 78 tarot cards and keeping a dream notebook in order to explore the inner realms. A passionate study of all facets of astrological science surfaced in June 1972 that led to my becoming a member of the Arcane School, a worldwide, a worldwide school of meditation linked to the work of Alice A. Bailey and the Tibetan master D.K. Continuing in this vein, I joined the staff of Lucis Trust in the Lucis Publishing Company in New York City. The Arcane School and Lucis Trust are different aspects of one enterprise. I remained on the staff from early 1975 until the fall of 1976. That period began my three-year adventure as a member of the Findhorn Foundation in Northern Scotland. The Findhorn Foundation was also known as a special, quote, alternative community, unquote, dating back to its founding November 17, 1970, 1962. Its early work centered around a remarkable experimental link between the human, plant, angelic, and divine kingdoms. The, that initial focus has widened and unfolded, allowing the foundation to become more of a planetary light center. Approximately 200 people live there, and thousands come each year for workshops, conferences, and daily tours. At any rate, it was back at Findhorn in the spring of 1979, just before my first daughter Gabrielle Marie was born, that I was fortunate enough to pick up a copy of Jeffrey Ash's the Ancient Wisdom. For over three months, the book sat on my shelf until one day I was prompted by an intuition to pour through it. I was instantly enthralled and excited. All of my esoteric studies and astrological pursuits seemed to come together. In a new way, all pathways appeared directed to one celestial symbol and source of power. According to Ash, the Great Bear has been and is the primary image vitalizing the mystical and sacred seven vibration on Earth and throughout humanity. Going through H.P. Blavatsky and the Secret Doctrine, Ancient Mythologies, Studies of the Sevenfold Rhythm of the Week, and the Phases of the Moon, Ash reveals how powerful the bear image has been for humanity, both the heavenly Big Dipper of the Great Bear constellation and the various bear totems in Siberia for the American Indians, the Eskimos, the Ainus of Japan, and the ancient Greeks. I was fascinated to learn that the word Arctic is derived from the Greek Arctos, or North, the literal meaning is the bear's place. The Latin septentrio means north as well and related to the seven oxen, another reference to the seven main stars of the Great Bear's Big Dipper. The Great Bear is the main power center of the sky with its sevenfold energies. Esoterically, it is considered the source of the seven rays or streams of life to our solar system and the earth. Ash suggests that the constellation was primary because it pivoted around the celestial pole and that the legendary Shambhala of the Far East and the magical mountains of diverse cultures re represented its power and wisdom transplanted on the earth. Ash also, also explains that ancient shamans or priests would dress as bears when acting out certain important tribal rituals. This was also a strong bear link to Greek mythology. There was also a strong link to bear link uh, to Greek mythology through the moon goddess Artemis, who turned her friend Callisto and her son into the great bear and little bear. 
Sometimes the constellation of the Great Bear found seven supreme earthly representatives. For instance, the seven rishis of Hindu teachings. Rather than the Great Bear, often the reference is to the seven bears. One interesting suggestion by Ash is a definite parallel between the amazing British uh, pilgrimage town of Glastonbury, center of the legends regarding King Arthur and a special visit by Jesus, and Shambhala, a divine power station said to be etherically centered in the Gobi Desert. Both centers appear to be 51 plus degrees north of the equator. That is remarkable in itself. However, that means both centers are one-seventh of the distance around the Earth starting from the central equatorial circle. Let me just pause here. What I just said is kind of significant because I hadn't thought about it in a while. Glastonbury, which is the center of the legends of King Arthur and, John, and Jesus, and Shambhala in the Gobi Desert, they're both at 51 plus degrees north of, this, of the celestial equator. So, as I said there, and to repeat, both centers appear to be 51 plus uh, degrees north of the equator. This, that is remarkable in itself. However, that means both centers are one-seventh of the distance, distance around the Earth, starting from the central equatorial circle, exclamation point. And then a bold seven, uh, subhead, the seven stars of the Great Bear. So, just commenting now, here I list them from A, A to G. The first one... And this is all in capital letters, Dug, the first star, uh, which is actually one of the two pointers, 15 degrees of Leo, that's the lead pointer of the star Dug. B, Merrick, 20 degrees of Leo. These are the zodiacal positions of these stars. The second pointer, what are they pointing at? Uh, they're pointing at Polaris, the North Star, which is part of uh, the Little Bear. Uh, C, Fact, P-H-A-C-D, one degree of Virgo. That's also part of the, uh, when you think of uh, the Great Bear, part of the, the pot or that area of the four stars, not from the handle, okay, uh, one of Virgo. D, Kaffa, K-A-F-F-A, -A, uh, three degrees of Virgo. Those four stars, uh, Du, Merrick, Fact, and Kaffa, 15 Leo, 20 Leo, one Virgo, and three Virgo. They're forming uh, the main pot area of uh, of the constellation. Uh, the constellation of the Great Bear, or the Big Dipper, shall we say, the, the dipper part rather than the handle. Then we have the three the three other stars on the handle, Alioth, uh, Nine of Virgo, which, by the way, is the moon for, which I just mentioned, it's interesting, that's the moon for the Dalai Lama, uh, Mizar. And by the way, Nine of Virgo is also in the Zodiac address, and I read that story a couple of podcasts ago in the podcast about royalty. That's the, the location of the White House, 1600 Pennsylvania Air, uh, Avenue, using the Zodiac address and this idea, which you go back to that podcast to remember, where you take out 360 degree multiples of the Zodiac. It turns out that 1600, that address is nine of, or nine plus of Virgo, or the 10th degree of Virgo. So Alioth is pretty much at that degree. It's moved on a little bit. So, I mean, it's moved on into, the, into 10 of Virgo. And that's where the Dalai Lama also winds up having his moon. Mizar at 16 of Virgo uh, is also there. Uh, and I just watched Deep Impact, and it's interesting. In the beginning of Deep Impact, um, uh, that movie, uh, which was came out the, around the same time as, uh, as Armageddon, and uh, they were looking in the stars, uh, and they're mentioning Mizar, they're mentioning... Uh, the stars in uh, 
in the Great Bear Constellation. And then they find that there's this uh, comet or meteor that's coming to the Earth that will destroy the Earth. And that's part of that whole plot of Deep Impact. Now, that was an interesting movie because the actress, uh, Tia Leone, who, who, uh, who plays the main star there, they give her the name Jenny Lerner. So when I, when I went to that movie, I was shocked that the, the main star as a reporter has my last name. So I found that to be very interesting. At any rate, uh, Mizar, 16 of Virgo. And by the way, that's very strong in my own chart, um, that posi position. And then the last one, Binet Nash, 27 of Virgo. That's at the, the end of the handle of the Great Bear, the Seven Stars. Well, I shouldn't say it's the Seven Stars, um, which is part of the Great Bear constellation. By the way, the, what looks like the Big Dipper won't look like the Big Dipper in a long, like in tens of thousands of years. I mean, it will take a long time. It has to do with how, how fast stars actually move because they're not fixed. We thought they were in the ancient world. Uh, Saturn was the, the outer planet. We thought there was nothing beyond there and the stars were fixed. And of course, everything is different now as we understand the galaxy and the universe. So anyway, back to the story. It's not that much longer here and then we'll be finishing up. Okay, all of these inspirations focus me back to Esoteric Astrology by Alice A. Bailey. Uh, in that source, there is much mention of the supernal triangle of the Great Bear, the Pleiades, and the star Sirius as our celestial father, mother, and Christ child. Also note that the two pointers, Dub and Merrick, are, and I've got to turn the page here, sorry, are considered special as they direct our gaze to Polaris, the North Star, pole star for the Piscean and Aquarian Ages. Um, by the late summer of 1979, just as my daughter was born and the planet Saturn completed its first 29 and a half year cycle around the zodiac from my birth in March 1950, I gave birth to Great Bear, a journal of the new astrology and the Western mysteries. I didn't know it then, but it turned into a one-time issue. Via its death, someone like a supernova explosion of a star or seed falling deeply into an unknown soil, invisible preparations began for its reincarnation as the current Welcome to Planet Earth. Welcome to Planet Earth began, amazingly enough, in June 1981, just as my second daughter, Katya Juliet, was born at the summer solstice. At that time, we had a handful of, by the way, Katya uh, is the one who has designed the website and does so many different amazing things for our school, for the app, and so much else that you see at Great Bear Enterprises and with all the work that we're doing. At that time, 1981, we had a handful of subscriptions and a vague dream. Now we have thousands of readers and the potential of millions viewing the expanded online journal in the months and years ahead. Oddly enough, the bear symbolism is starkly apparent at my birth, and my birth, the sign Aquarius, was rising with the giant planet Jupiter just three degrees from the horizon at 22 plus degrees of Aquarius. The symbol given out in Dane Redger as an astrological mandala for that degree is, quote, a big bear sitting down and waving all its paws, unquote. He refers to this degree as offering specialized training for certain work and, and offers a keyword of discipleship. And then I mentioned to the readers, if you have items to share about the bear motif, symbolism, and mythology, please write to us. The great bear is just a phone call or a letter away. And of course, that <laughs> reminds you that in those days, we were, we, we, the uh, email was just starting in 1995 and we didn't have, uh, People didn't have iPhones and what we have with 24-7. I mean, we had CNN, of course, and we were beginning to have just the beginnings of the Internet, but we didn't have a whole lot of what we have now. 
I mean, certainly with the World Wide Web and all these different things. So, uh, yeah, it's almost exactly like last time, three plus hours. And uh, now things are very different. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're exactly the same number of uh, hours and minutes as the last time. So I'm going to sign off here. We're going to go into some really great new podcasts and shift gears from everything about the U.S. elections and the inauguration. I'm sure I will be commenting, though, because when, as Yogi Bear said, it ain't over till it's over. And, and now we know more about his chart. We know more about the Dalai Lama's chart. We know more about Ralph Waldo Emerson, how all of these things are coming together. We know a lot more about Kamala Harris connected to the Andromeda Galaxy. If you go to many of the podcasts, we've got charts of Nancy Pelosi, who has an amazing chart. There's also um, so many different um, astrology charts in these 69 different podcasts that we've done since May of 2019. And again, I think of almost, I, I think if, if, if somebody were to say, uh, about the feminine masculine with astrology in an odd sort of way, and I hadn't thought about this till now, the natal chart would be kind of like neutral, neither male nor female. And again, in astrology, sometimes it's said, well, Aries is a fire sign, it's masculine, Taurus is an earth sign, it's feminine, and they go back and forth like masculine, feminine, masculine, feminine. Of course, we've got Venus is traditionally the feminine planet, Mars is masculine. The asteroids are all feminine, but Traditionally, we had so many masculine energies, Jupiter being a male god, Saturn a male god, Mercury a male god, Neptune a male god, and so on, that we only had Venus. It was the only feminine planet because the moon is not a planet to the Earth satellite. And as I said before, in some mythologies, the, the moon, while mostly feminine, is not always feminine. And again, the typical kind of male chauvinist thing of, oh, look at the man in the moon. The pic it looks like the man in the moon. Why isn't it the woman in the moon? It's because of the the preponderance of the patriarchy and the male dominance of naming planets. Fortunately, now, a lot of these astronomers are naming not all of the new planets feminine, but many of them, whether it's Eris, Sedna, and many others, Maki Maki, Haumea, after goddess energies from different mythologies around the world. And thank God for all of that. And thank God also that uh, Ceres, Pallas, Athena, Juno, and Vesta, those four asteroids were named for goddesses. And those those astronomers thought they had discovered planets. As I said the last time, it was actually Sir William Herschel who had discovered Uranus, and maybe from a jealousy standpoint, partly because it was discovered that they weren't such large bodies that they were called asteroids or star-like instead of being regular planets. And it was only in 2006 at this uh, astronomical organization when Pluto was demoted, it was Ceres was actually raised from being an asteroid to being a dwarf planet and now we have sent out through NASA, uh, the DAWN, D-A-W-N in capitals, that spacecraft went to Vesta and Ceres. And now we know that Ceres, the main body in the asteroids, which is where a planet should be and may have existed eons ago. And again, um, the late Tom Van Flandren, who was on Coast a, Ho uh, Coast a Lot, who has his exploding planet hypothesis. And again, every all my research about George Lucas and Alderaan, which you can read more about in my Star Wars uh, podcast and those articles that I wrote a long time ago, um, he connects up George Lucas to uh, the discovery of Ceres in his own birth chart, George Lucas, um, from May 14th, 1944. It's a direct connection to the discovery of, of Ceres. And that is 
where a planet could have been or may have been exploded or uh, destroyed. Uh, eventually, I'm going to link that back up, believe it or not, to Krypton in the Superman series, which is a very big deal. Uh, I'll, I have a whole write-up on that, but that'll be a whole separate thing, maybe two podcasts about um, that. So I'll, we're going to get into some very, very interesting stories in 2021 about the nuclear axis, about the beginning of Superman and that connection to Krypton as a, as a planet that exploded in a far-off galaxy, just like uh, Alderaan exploded uh, in the Star Wars series. And I've already shared about George Lucas and U UFOs and so on. But all of these are connected, and the asteroids are very important, as well as my teacher, Eleanor Bach. And I'm just so happy to see that Kamala Harris is going to become uh, the first vice president um, you know, of the United States and potentially the first woman president. And this is going to be an extraordinary story of the next four years, regardless of where we go and regardless of the transits and cycles that happen. And we fortunately, we do know Kamala Harris's birth time because, as I've shared before, we didn't know Ronald Reagan's birth time. Uh, even Bill Clinton's time was a little bit flaky. A lot of the different people um, in the, who have become president, we don't have their exact birth times. And when you don't have that, again, for Ronald Reagan, there's like dozens of potential birth times. Donald Trump, we have a birth time. Joe Biden, we have a, a, a time from memory to a famous uh, astrologer. So the odds are that that's pretty accurate, although one doesn't know that 100%. With Kamala Harris, we have a birth certificate. We have an exact time. That's going to help us enormously as we chart Kamala Harris's rise to power once she is in that office. And this is going to be very exciting. Right now, it's Joe Biden picking different people. And Kamala Harris, I'm not saying an afterthought because it's not. But she is going to play this enormously significant role. I mean, that's what I feel in my heart, in my mind. And her astrology chart is connected in so many different ways. Her progressions are amazing. She's got the moon conjunct Jupiter exactly on January 20th at 17 plus degrees of Taurus in her secondary progress chart. And there are many other things in her progress chart and will be developing over the next four years, including Pluto being stationary in her progress chart. And also in the next four years, she will have just as she's born with a full moon exact, she will have a progressed full moon during her four-year tenure in office as vice president. And that could lead her, if she does well, and if the, if the American public gets to know her very well, and she's clear and focused and does an incredible job, which I hope she will do, I mean, we can't tell what's going to happen, that there are genuine possibilities that in 2025 and or in 2029, she could be president of the United States and possibly for both of those time periods. Of course, Republicans, conservatives, they're going to be regrouping. We don't even know where things are going to go in 2022, which are going to be important midterm elections. I'll share more about Pluto and its return three times in that year to its U.S. position in 2022. And you, you know for sure if Mitch McConnell is still healthy and he's still in there, whether majority leader of the Senate or not, they're going to want to... Uh, have the Senate being Republican, and they're going to hope to try and take over the House, you know, and they won't be able to take over the presidency for four years. But then we are going to have a retrograding Mars during that inauguration. This last time in November, we had Mars retrograde during the election. So I'll be bringing these stories up about Mars retrograde and other kinds of cycles and the secondary progressions of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. And at some point, we will look again at the inauguration chart. If there, there are any big stories that break, I'll do either an Astro Flash in print uh, that will go on the app 
and or in Earth Aquarius News or in another podcast. Thank you very much for listening, this long journey that we often take, and uh, many blessings and much healing and inspiration to you and your families and for all the holidays and for the new year. We will be coming up with another podcast, though, pretty soon that's very exciting and a new series. Um, Again, thank you very much for listening. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.